What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 9 of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 9. The Tempter. My prince, said Aramis, turning in the carriage towards his companion, weak creature as I am, so unpretending in genius, so low in the scale of intelligent beings, it has never yet happened to me to converse with a man without penetrating his thoughts through that living mask which has been thrown over our mind, in order to retain its expression. But to-night, in this darkness, in the reserve which you maintain, I can read nothing on your features, and something tells me that I shall have great difficulty in wresting from you a sincere declaration. I beseech you, then, not for love of me, for subjects should never weigh as anything in the balance which princes hold, but for love of yourself, to retain every syllable, every inflection which, under the present most grave circumstances, will all have a sense and value as important as any ever uttered in the world. I listen, replied the young prince, decidedly, without either eagerly seeking or fearing anything that you are about to say to me. And he buried himself still deeper in the thick cushions of the carriage, trying to deprive his companion not only of the sight of him, but even of the very idea of his presence. Black was the darkness which fell wide and dense from the summits of the intertwining trees. The carriage, covered in by this prodigious roof, would not have received a particle of light, not even if a ray could have struggled through the wreaths of mist that were already rising in the avenue. "'Monseigneur,' resumed Aramis, "'you know the history of the government which today controls France.' The king issued from an infancy imprisoned like yours, obscure as yours, and confined as yours, only, instead of ending, like yourself, this slavery in a prison, this obscurity in solitude, these straitened circumstances in concealment, 
He was fain to bear all these miseries, humiliations, and distresses, in full daylight, under the pitiless sun of royalty, on an elevation flooded with light where every stain appears a blemish, every glory a stain. The king has suffered, it rankles in his mind, and he will avenge himself. He will be a bad king. I say not that he will pour out his people's blood like Louis the Eleventh or Charles the Ninth, for he has no mortal injuries to avenge. But he will devour the means and substance of his people, for he has himself undergone wrongs in his own interest and money. In the first place, then, I acquit my conscience when I consider openly the merits and the faults of this great prince, and if I condemn him, my conscience absolves me. Aramis paused. It was not to listen if the silence of the forest remained undisturbed, but it was to gather up his thoughts from the very bottom of his soul, to leave the thoughts he had uttered sufficient time to eat deeply into the mind of his companion. All that heaven does, heaven does well, continued the Bishop of Vaughan, and I am so persuaded of it that I have long been thankful to have been chosen depository of the secret which I have aided you to discover. To a just providence was necessary an instrument, at once penetrating, persevering, and convinced, to accomplish a great work. I am this instrument. I possess penetration, perseverance, conviction. I govern a mysterious people, who has taken for its motto, the motto of God, Patiens Kia Oeternus. The prince moved. I divine, Monseigneur, why you are raising your head, and are surprised at the people I have under my command. You did not know you were dealing with a king. <laughs> oh, Monseigneur, king of a people very humble, much disinherited. Humble because they have no force save when creeping. Disinherited, because never, almost never in this world, do my people reap the harvest they sow, nor eat the fruit they cultivate. They labor for an abstract idea. They heap together all the atoms of their power, to from a single man. And round this man, with the sweat of their labor, they create a misty halo, which his genius shall, in turn, render a glory gilded with the rays of all the crowns in Christendom. Such is the man you have beside you, Monseigneur. It is to tell you that he has drawn you from the abyss for a great purpose to raise you above the powers of the earth, above himself. Footnote. The Latin motto translates as, He is patient because he is eternal. It is from St. Augustine. This motto was sometimes applied to the papacy, but not to the Jesuits. End of footnote. The prince slightly touched Aramis's arm. You speak to me? he said, of that religious order whose chief you are. For me, the result of your words is, that the day you desire to hurl down the man you shall have raised, the event will be accomplished, and that you will keep under your hand your creation of yesterday. Undeceive yourself, Monseigneur, replied the bishop. I should not take the trouble to play this terrible game with your royal highness, if I had not a double interest in gaining it. The day you are elevated, you are elevated forever. 
you will overturn the footstool as you rise, and will send it rolling so far, that not even the sight of it will ever again recall to you its right to simple gratitude. Oh, monsieur! Your movement, monseigneur, arises from an excellent disposition. I thank you. Be well assured, I aspire to more than gratitude. I am convinced that, when arrived at the summit, you will judge me still more worthy to be your friend. And then, Monseigneur, we too will do such great deeds that ages hereafter shall long speak of them. Tell me plainly, Monsieur, tell me without disguise, what I am to-day, and what you aim at my being to-morrow. You are the son of King Louis the Thirteenth, brother of Louis the Fourteenth, natural and legitimate heir to the throne of France. In keeping you near him, as Monsieur has been kept, Monsieur, your younger brother, the king reserved to himself the right of being legitimate sovereign. The doctors only could dispute his legitimacy, but the doctors always prefer the king who is to the king who is not. Providence has willed that you should be persecuted. This persecution to-day consecrates you, King of France. You had, then, a right to reign, seeing that it is disputed. You had a right to be proclaimed, seeing that you have been concealed. And you possess royal blood, since no one has dared to shed yours, as that of your servants has been shed. Now see, then, what this providence— which you have so often accused of having in every way thwarted you, has done for you. It has given you the features, figure, age, and voice of your brother, and the very causes of your persecution are about to become those of your triumphant restoration. Tomorrow, after tomorrow, from the very first, regal phantom, living shade of Louis the Fourteenth, you will sit upon his throne, whence the will of heaven, confided in execution to the arm of man, will have hurled him without hope of return. "'I understand,' said the prince. "'My brother's blood will not be shed, then.' "'You will be the sole arbiter of his fate.' "'The secret of which they made an evil use against me?' "'You will employ it against him. What did he do to conceal it? He concealed you.' Living image of himself, you will defeat the conspiracy of Mazarin and Anne of Austria. You, my prince, will have the same interest in concealing him, who will, as a prisoner, resemble you, and as you will resemble him as a king. I fall back on what I was saying to you. Who will guard him? Who guarded you? You know this secret. You have made use of it with regard to myself. Who else knows it? The Queen Mother and Madame de Chevreuse. What will they do? Nothing, if you choose. How is that? How can they recognize you, if you act in such a manner that no one can recognize you? Tis true. But there are grave difficulties. State them, Prince. My brother is married. I cannot take my brother's wife. I will cause Spain to consent to a divorce. It is in the interest of your new policy. It is human morality. All that is really noble and really useful in this world will find its account therein. The imprisoned king will speak. 
To whom do you think he will speak? To the walls? You mean, by walls, the men in whom you put confidence? If need be, yes. And besides, your royal highness? Besides? I was going to say that the designs of Providence do not stop on such a fair road. Every scheme of this calibre is completed by its results, like a geometrical calculation. The king, in prison, will not be for you the cause of embarrassment that you have been for the king enthroned. His soul is naturally proud and impatient. It is, moreover, disarmed and enfeebled by being accustomed to honours, and by the licence of supreme power. The same providence which has willed that the concluding step in the geometrical calculation I have had the honour of describing to your royal highness, should be your ascension to the throne, and the destruction of him who is hurtful to you, has also determined that the conquered one shall soon end both his own and your sufferings. Therefore, his soul and body have been adapted for but a brief agony. Put into prison as a private individual, left alone with your doubts, deprived of everything, you have exhibited the most sublime, enduring principle of life in withstanding all this. But your brother, a captive, forgotten, and in bonds, will not long endure the calamity, and heaven will resume his soul at the appointed time, that is to say, soon. At this point in Aramis's gloomy analysis, a bird of night uttered from the depths of the forest that prolonged and plaintive cry which makes every creature tremble. "'I will exile the deposed king,' said Philippe, shuddering. "'Twill be more human.' "'The king's good pleasure will decide the point,' said Aramis. "'But has the problem been well put? "'Have I brought out of the solution according to the wishes "'or the foresight of your royal highness?' "'Yes, monsieur, yes. "'You have forgotten nothing, except, indeed, two things.' "'The first. "'Let us speak of it at once, "'with the same frankness we have already conversed in.' Let us speak of the causes which may bring about the ruin of all the hopes we have conceived. Let us speak of the risks we are running. They would be immense, infinite, terrific, insurmountable, if, as I have said, all things did not concur to render them of absolutely no account. There is no danger either for you or for me, if the constancy and intrepidity of your royal highness are equal to that perfection of resemblance to your brother which nature has bestowed upon you. I repeat it. There are no dangers, only obstacles. A word, indeed, which I find in all languages, but have always ill understood, and, were I king, would have obliterated as useless and absurd. Yes, indeed, monsieur, there is a very serious obstacle, an insurmountable danger, which you are forgetting. Ah, said Aramis, there is conscience which cries aloud, remorse that never dies. True, true, said the bishop. There is a weakness of heart of which you remind me. You are right, too, for that, indeed, is an immense obstacle. The horse, afraid of the ditch, leaps into the middle of it and is killed. The man who, trembling, crosses his sword with that of another, 
leaves loopholes whereby his enemy has him in his power. "'Have you a brother?' said the young man to Aramis. "'I am alone in the world,' said the latter with a hard, dry voice. "'But surely there is someone in the world whom you love,' added Philippe. "'No one. Yes, I love you.' The young man sank into so profound a silence that the mere sound of his respiration seemed like a roaring tumult for Aramis. "'Monseigneur,' he resumed, "'I have not said all I had to say to your royal highness. I have not offered you all of the salutary counsels and useful resources which I have at my disposal. It is useless to flash bright visions before the eyes of one who seeks and loves darkness. Useless, too, is it to let the magnificence of the cannon's roar make itself heard in the ears of one who loves repose and the quiet of the country. "'Monseigneur,' I have your happiness spread out before me in my thoughts. Listen to my words, precious they indeed are, in their import and their sense, for you who look with such tender regard upon the bright heavens, the verdant meadows, the pure air. I know a country instinct with delights of every kind, an unknown paradise, a secluded corner of the world, where alone, unfettered and unknown, in the thick covert of the woods, amidst flowers and streams of rippling water, you will forget all the misery that human folly has so recently allotted you. Oh, listen to me, my prince. I do not jest. I have a heart, and mind, and soul, and can read your own, I, even to its depths. I will not take you unready for your task, in order to cast you into the crucible of my own desires, of my caprice, or my ambition. Let it be all or nothing. You are chilled and galled, sick at heart, overcome by excess of the emotions which but one hour's liberty has produced in you. For me, that is a certain and unmistakable sign that you do not wish to continue at liberty. Would you prefer a more humble life, a life more suited to your strength? Heaven is my witness, that I wish your happiness to be the result of the trial to which I have exposed you. "'Speak, speak!' said the prince, with a vivacity which did not escape Aramis. "'I know,' resumed the prelate, "'in the Bas-Poitou, a canton, of which no one in France suspects the existence. Twenty leagues of country is immense, is it not? Twenty leagues, Monseigneur, all covered with water and herbage, and reeds of the most luxuriant nature, the whole studded with islands covered with woods of the densest foliage. These large marshes, covered with reeds as with a thick mantle, sleep silently and calmly beneath the sun's soft and genial rays. A few fishermen with their families indolently pass their lives away there, with their great living rafts of poplar and alder, the flooring formed of reeds, and the roof woven out of thick rushes. These barks, these floating houses, are wafted to and fro by the changing winds. Whenever they touch a bank, it is but by chance, and so gently, too, that the sleeping fisherman is not awakened by the shock. Should he wish to land, it is merely because he has seen a large flight of landrails or plovers, of wild ducks, 
teal, widgeon, or woodchucks, which fall an easy prey to net or gun. Silver shad, eels, greedy pike, red and grey mullet, swim in shoals into his nets. He has but to choose the finest and largest, and return the others to the waters. Never yet has the food of the stranger, be he soldier or simple citizen, never has any one, indeed, penetrated into that district. The sun's rays there are soft and tempered. In plots of solid earth, whose soil is swart and fertile, grows the vine, nourishing with generous juice its purple, white, and golden grapes. Once a week, a boat is sent to deliver the bread which has been baked at an oven, the common property of all. There, like the seigneurs of early days, powerful in virtue of your dogs, your fishing lines, your guns, and your beautiful reed-built house, would you live, rich in the produce of the chase, in plentitude of absolute secrecy. There would years of your life roll away, at the end of which, no longer recognizable, for you would have been perfectly transformed. You would have succeeded in acquiring a destiny accorded to you by heaven. There are a thousand pistoles in this bag, Monseigneur, more, far more, than sufficient to purchase the whole marsh of which I have spoken, more than enough to live there as many years as you have days to live, more than enough to constitute you the richest, the freest, and the happiest man in the country. Accept it, as I offer it you, sincerely, cheerfully. Forthwith, without a moment's pause, I will unharness two of my horses, which are attached to the carriage yonder, and they, accompanied by my servant, my deaf and dumb attendant, shall conduct you, travelling throughout the night, sleeping during the day, to the locality I have described, and I shall at least have the satisfaction of knowing that I have rendered to my prince the major service he himself preferred. I shall have made one human being happy." and heaven for that will hold me in better account than if I had made one man powerful. The former task is far more difficult. And now, Monseigneur, your answer to this proposition. Here is the money. Nay, do not hesitate. At Poitou you can risk nothing, except the chance of catching the fevers prevalent there, and even of them the so-called wizards of the country will cure you, for the sake of your pistoles. If you play the other game, you run the chance of being assassinated on a throne, strangled in a prison cell. Upon my soul, I assure you, now I begin to compare them together, I myself should hesitate which lot I should accept. Monsieur, replied the young prince, before I determine, let me alight from this carriage, walk on the ground, and consult that still voice within me, which heaven bids us all to hearken to. Ten minutes is all I ask, and then you shall have your answer. As you please, Monseigneur, said Aramis, bending before him with respect, so solemn and august in tone and address had sounded these strange words. End of chapter Chapter Ten of the Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 
and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 10 Crown and Tierra Aramis was the first to descend from the carriage. He held the door open for the young man. He saw him place his foot on the mossy ground with a trembling of the whole body, and walk round the carriage with an unsteady and almost tottering step. It seemed as if the poor prisoner was unaccustomed to walk on God's earth. It was the 15th of August, about eleven o'clock at night. Thick clouds, portending a tempest, overspread the heavens, and shrouded every light and prospect underneath their heavy folds. The extremities of the avenues were imperceptibly detached from the copse, by a lighter shadow of opaque grey, which upon closer examination became visible in the midst of the obscurity. But the fragrance which ascended from the grass, fresher and more penetrating than that which exhaled from the trees around him, the warm and balming air which enveloped him for the first time for many years past, the ineffable enjoyment of liberty and an open country, spoke to the prince in so seductive a language, that notwithstanding the preternatural caution, we would almost say dissimulation of his character, of which we have tried to give an idea, he could not restrain his emotion and breathe a sigh of ecstasy. Then, by degrees, he raised his aching head and inhaled the softly scented air, as it was wafted in gentle gusts to his uplifted face. Crossing his arms on his chest, as if to control the new sensation of delight, he drank in delicious draughts of that mysterious air which interpenetrates at night the loftiest forests. The sky he was contemplating, the murmuring waters, the universal freshness, was not all this reality? Was not Aramis a madman to suppose that he had aught else to dream of in this world? Those exciting pictures of country life, so free from fears and troubles, the ocean of happy days that glitters incessantly before all young imaginations, are real allurements wherewith to fascinate a poor, unhappy prisoner, worn out by prison cares, emaciated by the stifling air of the Bastille. It was the picture, it will be remembered, drawn by Aramis, when he offered the thousand pistoles he had with him in the carriage to the prince, and the enchanted Eden which the deserts of Bas-Poitou hid from the eyes of the world. Such were the reflections of Aramis as he watched, with an anxiety impossible to describe, the silent progress of the emotions of Philippe, whom he perceived gradually becoming more and more absorbed in his meditations. The young prince was offering up an inward prayer to heaven, to be divinely guided in this trying moment, upon which his life, or death, depended. It was an anxious time for the Bishop of Vannes, who had never before been so perplexed. His iron will, accustomed to overcome all obstacles, never finding itself inferior or vanquished on any occasion, to be foiled in so vast a project from not having foreseen the influence which a view of nature in all its luxuriance could have on a human mind. Aramis, overwhelmed by anxiety, contemplated with emotion the painful struggle that was taking place in Philippe's mind. This suspense lasted the whole ten minutes which the young man had requested. During the space of time, which appeared an eternity, Philippe continued gazing with an imploring and sorrowful look towards the heavens. Aramis did not remove the piercing glance he had fixed on Philippe. 
Suddenly the young man bowed his head. His thought returned to the earth, his looks perceptibly hardened, his brow contracted, his mouth assuming an expression of undaunted courage. Again his looks became fixed, but this time they wore a worldly expression, hardened by covetousness, pride, and strong desire. Aramis's look immediately became as soft as it had before been gloomy. Philippe, seizing his hand in a quick agitated manner, exclaimed, "'Lead me to where the crown of France is to be found.' "'Is this your decision, Monseigneur?' asked Aramis. "'It is.' "'Irrevocably so?' Philippe did not even deign to reply. He gazed earnestly at the bishop, as if to ask him if it were possible for a man to waver after having once made up his mind. "'Such looks are flashes of the hidden fire that betrays men's character,' said Aramis, bowing over Philippe's hand. "'You will be great, Monseigneur. I will answer for that.' "'Let us resume our conversation. I wish to discuss two points with you. In the first place, the dangers, or the obstacles we may meet with. That point is decided. The other is the conditions you intend imposing on me. It is your turn to speak, Monsieur de Blais. The conditions, Monseigneur? Doubtless. You will not allow so mere a trifle to stop me, and you will not do me the injustice to suppose that I think you have no interest in this affair. Therefore, without subterfuge or hesitation, tell me the truth. I will do so, Monseigneur. Once a king. When will that be? Tomorrow evening. I mean, in the night. Explain yourself. When I shall have asked your highness a question. Do so. I sent to your highness a man in my confidence with instructions to deliver some closely written notes, carefully drawn up, which will thoroughly acquaint your highness with the different persons who compose and will compose your court. I peruse those notes. Attentively. I know them by heart. And understand them. Pardon me, but I may venture to ask that question of a poor, abandoned captive of the Bastille. In a week's time it will not be requisite to further question a mind like yours. You will then be in full possession of liberty and power. Interrogate me, then and I will be a scholar representing his lesson to his master. We will begin with your family, Monseigneur. My mother, Anne of Austria, all her sorrows, her painful malady. Oh, I know her, I know her. Your second brother? asked Aramis, bowing. To these notes, replied the prince, you have added portraits so faithfully painted that I am able to recognize the persons whose characters, manners, and history you have so carefully portrayed. Monsieur, my brother is a fine, dark young man, with a pale face. He does not love his wife, Henrietta, whom I, Louis the Fourteenth, loved a little, and still flirt with. Even although she made me weep on the day she wished to dismiss Mademoiselle de la Valliere from her service in disgrace. "'You will have to be careful with regard to the watchfulness of the latter,' said Aramis. "'She is sincerely attached to the actual king. The eyes of a woman who loves are not easily deceived.' "'She is fair, has blue eyes, whose affectionate gaze reveals her identity. 
She halts slightly in her gait. She writes a letter every day, to which I have to send an answer by Monsieur de Saint-Dangin. Do you know the latter? As if I saw him, and I know the last verses he composed for me, as well as those I composed in answer to his. Very good. Do you know your ministers? Colbert, an ugly, dark-browed man, but intelligent enough, his hair covering his forehead, a large, heavy, full head, the mortal enemy of Monsieur Fouquet. As for the latter, we need not disturb ourselves about him. No, because necessarily you will not require me to exile him, I suppose. Aramis, struck with admiration at the remark, said, You will become very great, Monseigneur. You see, added the prince, that I know my lesson by heart, and with heaven's assistance, and yours afterwards, I shall seldom go wrong. You have still an awkward pair of eyes to deal with, Monseigneur. Yes, the captain of the musketeers, Monsieur d'Artagnan, your friend. Yes, I can well say, my friend. He who escorted La Valliere to Le Chaillot, he who delivered up Monk, cooped in an iron box, to Charles the Second, he who so faithfully served my mother, he to whom the crown of France owes so much that it owes everything, do you intend to ask me to exile him also? Never, sire. D'Artagnan is a man to whom, at a certain given time, I will undertake to reveal everything. But be on your guard with him, for if he discovers our plot before it is revealed to him, you or I will certainly be killed or taken. He is a bold and enterprising man. I will think it over. Now tell me about Monsieur Fouquet. What do you wish to be done with regard to him? One moment more, I entreat you, Monseigneur, and forgive me, if I seem to fail in respect to questioning you further. It is your duty to do so. Nay, more than that, your right. Before we pass to Monsieur Fouquet, I should very much regret forgetting another friend of mine. Monsieur du Vallon, the Hercules of France, you mean? Oh, as far as he is concerned, his interests are more than safe. No, it is not he whom I intended to refer to. The Comte de la Fere, then? and his son, the son of all four of us. That poor boy who is dying of love for La Valliere, whom my brother so loyally bereft him of? Be easy on that score. I shall know how to rehabilitate his happiness. Tell me only one thing, Monsieur Dublay. Do men, when they love, forget the treachery that has been shown them? Can a man ever forgive the woman who has betrayed him? Is that a French custom? or is it one of the laws of the human heart? A man who loves deeply, as deeply as Roux loves Mademoiselle de la Valliere, finishes by forgetting the fault or crime of the woman he loves, but I do not yet know whether Raoul will be able to forget. I will see after that. Have you anything further to say about your friend? No, that is all. Well, then, now for Monsieur Fouquet. What do you wish me to do for him? To keep him on as superintendent, in the capacity in which he has hitherto acted, I entreat you. Be it so, 
but he is the first minister at present. Not quite so. A king, ignorant and embarrassed as I shall be, will, as a matter of course, require a first minister of state. Your majesty will require a friend. I have only one, and that is yourself. You will have many others by and by, but none so devoted, none so zealous for your glory. You shall be my first minister of state. Not immediately, Monseigneur, for that would give rise to too much suspicion and astonishment. Monsieur de Richelieu, the first minister of my grandmother, Marie de Medici, was simply Bishop of Lucon, as you are Bishop of Vannes. I perceive that your Royal Highness has studied my notes to great advantage. Your amazing perspicacity overpowers me with delight. I am perfectly aware that Monsieur de Richelieu, by means of the Queen's protection, soon became cardinal. It would be better, said Aramis, bowing, that I should not be appointed First Minister until your Royal Highness has procured my nomination as cardinal. You shall be nominated before two months are past, Monsieur d'Herblay. But that is a matter of very trifling moment. You would not offend me if you were to ask more than that, and you would cause me serious regret if you were to limit yourself to that. In that case, I have something still further to hope for, Monseigneur. Speak, speak. Monsieur Fouquet will not keep long at the head of affairs. He will soon get old. He is fond of pleasure, consistently, I mean, with all his labours, thanks to the youthfulness he still retains, but this protracted youth will disappear at the approach of the first serious annoyance, or at the first illness he may experience. We will spare him the annoyance, because he is an agreeable and noble-hearted man, but we cannot save him from ill health. So it is determined. When you shall have paid all M. Fouquet's debts, and restored the finances to a sound condition, Monsieur Fouquet will be able to remain the sovereign ruler in his little court of poets and painters. We shall have made him rich. When that has been done, and I have become your Royal Highness's Prime Minister, I shall be able to think of my own interests and yours. The young man looked at his interrogator. Monsieur de Richelieu, of whom we were speaking just now, was very much to blame in the fixed idea he had of governing France alone unaided. He allowed two kings, King Louis the Thirteenth and himself, to be seated on the self-same throne, whilst he might have installed them more conveniently upon two separate and distinct thrones. "'Upon two thrones,' said the young man thoughtfully. "'In fact,' pursued Aramis quietly, "'a cardinal,' Prime Minister of France, assisted by the favour and by the countenance of His Most Christian Majesty the King of France, a cardinal to whom the King his master lends the treasures of the state, his army, his council, such a man would be acting with twofold injustice in applying these mighty resources to France alone. Besides, added Aramis, you will not be a king such as your father was, delicate in health, slow in judgment, whom all things wearied, you will be a king governing by your brain and by your sword. You will have in the government of the state no more than you will be able to manage unaided. I should only interfere with you. Besides, our friendship ought never to be, 
I do not say impaired, but in any degree affected by a secret thought. I shall have given you the throne of France. You will confer on me the throne of St. Peter. Whenever your loyal, firm, and mailed hand should join in ties of intimate association the hands of a pope such as I shall be, neither Charles V, who owned two-thirds of the habitable globe, nor Charlemagne, who possessed it entirely, will be able to reach to half your stature. I have no alliances, I have no predilections, I will not throw you into persecutions of heretics, nor will I cast you into the troubled waters of family dissension. I will simply say to you, the whole universe is our own, for me the minds of men, for you their bodies. And as I shall be the first to die, you will have my inheritance. What do you say of my plan, Monseigneur? I say that you render me happy and proud, for no other reason than that of having comprehended you thoroughly. Monsieur d'Herblay, you shall be cardinal, and when cardinal, my prime minister, and then you will point out to me the necessary steps to be taken to secure your election as pope, and I will take them. You can ask what guarantees from me you please. It is useless. Never shall I act except in such a manner that you will be the gainer. I shall never ascend the ladder of fortune, fame, or position, until I have first seen you placed upon the round of the ladder immediately above me. I shall always hold myself sufficiently aloof from you to escape incurring your jealousy, sufficiently near to sustain your personal advantage and to watch over your friendship. All the contracts in the world are easily violated, because the interests included in them incline more to one side than to another. With us, however, this will never be the case. I have no need of any guarantees. And so, my dear brother, will disappear? Simply. We will remove him from his bed by means of a plank which yields to the pressure of the finger. Having retired to rest a crowned sovereign, he will awake a captive. Alone you will rule from that moment, and you will have no interest dearer and better than that of keeping me near you. I believe it. There is my hand on it, Monsieur d'Herblay. Allow me to kneel before you, sire, most respectfully. We will embrace each other on the day we shall have upon our temples. You the crown, I the tiara. Still embrace me this very day also, and be, for and towards me, more than great, more than skilful, more than sublime in genius. Be kind and indulgent. Be my father. Aramis was almost overcome as he listened to his voice. He fancied he detected in his own heart an emotion hitherto unknown. But this impression was speedily removed. His father, he thought. Yes, his holy father. And they resumed their places in the carriage which sped rapidly along the road leading to Vaux-le-Vicomte. End of chapter. Chapter 11 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 11. 
the Chateau de Vaux-le-Vicomte. The Chateau of Vaux-le-Vicomte, situated about a league from Melun, had been built by Fouquet in 1655, at a time when there was a scarcity of money in France. Mazarin had taken all that there was, and Fouquet expended the remainder. However, as certain men have fertile, false, and useful vices, Fouquet, in scattering broadcast millions of money in the construction of this palace, had found a means of gathering, as the result of his generous profusion, three illustrious men together, Levaux, the architect of the building, Le Notre, the designer of the gardens, and Le Brun, the decorator of the apartments. If the Chateau de Vaux possessed a single fault with which it could be reproached, it was its grand, pretentious character. It is even at the present day proverbial to calculate the number of acres of roofing, the restoration of which would, in our age, be the ruin of fortunes cramped and narrowed as the epoch itself. Vaux-le-Vicomte, when its magnificent gates, supported by caryatids, have been passed through, has the principal front of the main building opening upon a vast, so-called, court of honour, enclosed by deep ditches, bordered by a magnificent stone balustrade. Nothing could be more noble in appearance than the central forecourt, raised upon the flight of steps, like a king upon his throne, having around it four pavilions at the angles, the immense ionic columns of which rose majestically to the whole height of the building. The friezes ornamented with arabesques, and the pediments which crowned the pilasters, conferred richness and grace on every part of the building, while the domes which surmounted the whole added proportion and majesty. This mansion, built by a subject, bore a far greater resemblance to those royal residences which Wolsey fancied he was called upon to construct, in order to present them to his master from the fear of rendering him jealous. But if magnificence and splendour were displayed in any one particular part of this palace more than another, if anything could be preferred to the wonderful arrangement of the interior, to the sumptuousness of the gilding, and to the profusion of the paintings and statues, it would be the park and gardens of Vaux. The jet d'eau, which were regarded as wonderful in 1653, are still so, even at the present time. The cascades awaken the admiration of kings and princes, and as for the famous grotto, the theme of so many poetical effusions, the residence of that illustrious nymph of Vaux, whom Pelisson made converse with La Fontaine, we must be spared the description of all its beauties. We will do as Despreaux did. We will enter the park, the trees of which are of eight years' growth only, that is to say, in their present position, and whose summits even yet, as they proudly tower aloft, blushingly unfold their leaves to the earliest rays of the rising sun. Le Notre had hastened the pleasure of the Mécenas of his period. All the nursery grounds had furnished trees whose growth had been accelerated by careful culture and the richest plant food. Every tree in the neighborhood which presented a fair appearance of beauty or stature had been taken up by its roots and transplanted to the park. Fouquet could well afford to purchase trees to ornament his park, since he had bought up three villages and their appurtenances, to use a legal word, to increase its extent. Monsieur de Scoudry said of this palace that, for the purpose of keeping the grounds and gardens well watered, 
Monsieur Fouquet had divided a river into a thousand fountains, and gathered the water of a thousand fountains into torrents. This same Monsieur de Scoudry had said a great many other things in his Clélie about this palace of Voltaire, the charms of which he describes most minutely. We should be far wiser to send our curious readers to Vaux to judge for themselves than to refer them to Clélie, and yet there are as many leagues from Paris to Vaux as there are volumes of the Clélie. This magnificent palace had been got ready for the reception of the greatest reigning sovereign of the time. Monsieur Fouquet's friends had transported thither, some their actors and their dresses, others their troops of sculptors and artists, not forgetting others with their ready-mended pens. Floods of impromptus were contemplated. The cascades, somewhat rebellious nymphs, though they were, poured forth their waters brighter and clearer than crystal. They scattered over the bronze triton and nereids their waves of foam, which glistened like fire in the rays of the sun. An army of servants were hurrying to and fro in squadrons in the courtyard and corridors, while Fouquet, who had only that morning arrived, walked all through the palace with a calm, observant glance, in order to give his last orders, after his intendants had inspected everything. It was, as we have said, the 15th of August. The sun poured down its burning rays upon the heathen deities of marble and bronze. It raised the temperature of the water in the conch shells, and ripened, on the walls, those magnificent peaches, of which the king, fifty years later, spoke so regretfully, when, at Marly, on an occasion of a scarcity of the finer sorts of peaches being complained of, in the beautiful gardens there, gardens which had cost France double the amount that had been expended on Vaux, the great king observed to someone, "'You are far too young to have eaten any of Monsieur Fouquet's peaches.' "'O oh, fame, O oh, blazon of renown, O oh, glory of this earth!' that very man whose judgment was so sound and accurate where merit was concerned, he who had swept into his coffers the inheritance of Nicolas Fouquet, who had robbed him of Le Notre and Le Brun, and had sent him to rot for the remainder of his life in one of the state prisons, merely remembered the peaches of that vanquished, crushed, forgotten enemy. It was to little purpose that Fouquet had squandered thirty millions of francs in the fountains of his gardens, in the crucibles of his sculptors, in the writing-desks of his literary friends, in the portfolios of his painters. Vainly had he fancied that thereby he might be remembered. A peach, a blushing, rich-flavoured fruit, nestling in the trellis-work on the garden wall, hidden behind its long green leaves. This little vegetable production, that a dormouse would nibble up without a thought, was sufficient to recall to the memory of this great monarch the mournful shade of the last superintendent of France. With a perfect reliance that Aramis had made arrangements fairly to distribute the vast number of guests throughout the palace, and that he had not omitted to attend to any of the internal regulations for their comfort, Fouquet devoted his entire attention to the ensemble alone. In one direction, Gourville showed him the preparations which had been made for the fireworks, in another, Moliere led him over the theatre. At last, after he had visited the chapel, the salon, and the galleries, and was again going downstairs, exhausted with fatigue, Fouquet saw Aramis on the staircase. The prelate beckoned to him. 
the superintendent joined his friend and with him paused before a large picture scarcely finished applying himself heart and soul to his work the painter lebrun covered with perspiration stained with paint pale from fatigue and the inspiration of genius was putting the last finishing touches with his rapid brush it was the portrait of the king whom they were expecting dressed in the court suit which Pesserin had condescended to show beforehand to the bishop of Vannes. Fouquet placed himself before this portrait, which seemed to live, as one might say, in the cool freshness of its flesh, and in its warmth of colour. He gazed upon it long and fixedly, estimated the prodigious labour that had been bestowed upon it, and, not being able to find any recompense sufficiently great for this Herculean effort, he passed his arm round the painter's neck and embraced him. The superintendent, by this action, had utterly ruined a suit of clothes worth a thousand pistoles, but he had satisfied, more than satisfied, Lebrun. It was a happy moment for the artist. It was an unhappy moment for Monsieur Passerin, who was walking behind Fouquet, and was engaged in admiring, in Lebrun's painting, the suit that he had made for His Majesty, a perfect objet d'art as he called it, which was not to be matched except in the wardrobe of the superintendent. His distress and his exclamations were interrupted by a signal which had been given from the summit of the mansion. In the direction of Melun, in the still empty, open plain, the sentinels of Vaux had just perceived the advancing procession of the king and the queens. His majesty was entering Melun with his long train of carriages and cavaliers. In an hour, said aramis to fouquet in an hour replied the latter sighing and the people who ask one another what is the good of these royal fetes <laughs> continued the bishop of vannes laughing with his false smile alas i too who am not the people ask myself the same thing i will answer you in four-and-twenty hours monseigneur assume a cheerful countenance for it should be a day of true rejoicing well believe me or not as you like d'herblay said the superintendent with a swelling heart pointing at the cortege of louis visible in the horizon he certainly loves me but very little and i do not care much more for him but i cannot tell you how it is that since he is approaching my house well what well since i know he is on his way here as my guest he is more sacred than ever for me. He is my acknowledged sovereign, and as such is very dear to me. Dear, yes, said Aramis, playing upon the word, as the Abbe Ture did, at a later period, with Louis the Fifteenth. Do not laugh, D'Herblay. I feel that, if he really seemed to wish it, I could love that young man. You should not say that to me, returned Aramis but rather to Monsieur Colbert. "'To Monsieur Colbert?' exclaimed Fouquet. "'Why so?' "'Because he would allow you a pension out of the king's privy purse, as soon as he becomes superintendent,' said Aramis, preparing to leave as soon as he had dealt this last blow. "'Where are you going?' returned Fouquet, with a gloomy look. "'To my own apartment, in order to change my costume, Monseigneur.' whereabouts are you lodging d'herblay in the blue room on the second story the room immediately over the king's room 
precisely. You will be subject to very great restraint there. What an idea to condemn yourself to a room where you cannot stir or move about. During the night, Monseigneur, I sleep or read in my bed. And your servants? I have but one attendant with me. I find my reader quite sufficient. Adieu, Monseigneur. Do not over-fatigue yourself. Keep yourself fresh for the arrival of the king. We shall see you by and by, I suppose, and shall see your friend Du Vallon also? He is lodging next to me, and is at this moment dressing. And Fouquet, bowing with a smile, passed on like a commander-in-chief who pays the different outposts a visit after the enemy has been signalled in sight. End of chapter Chapter Twelve of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter Twelve The Wine of Melun. The King had, in point of fact, entered Melun with the intention of merely passing through the city. The youthful monarch was most eagerly anxious for amusements. Only twice during the journey had he been able to catch a glimpse of La Valliere, and, suspecting that his only opportunity of speaking to her would be after nightfall, in the gardens, and after the ceremony of reception had been gone through, he had been very desirous to arrive at Vaux as early as possible. But he reckoned without his captain of the musketeers, and without Monsieur Colbert. Like Calypso, who could not be consoled at the departure of Ulysses, our Gascon could not console himself for not having guessed why Aramis had asked Percerin to show him the king's new costumes. There is not a doubt, he said to himself, that my friend the Bishop of Vannes had some motive in that. And then he began to rack his brains most uselessly. D'Artagnan, so intimately acquainted with all the court intrigues, who knew the position of Fouquet better than even Fouquet himself did, had conceived the strangest fancies and suspicions at the announcement of the fete, which would have ruined a wealthy man, and which became impossible, utter madness even, for a man so poor as he was. And then, the presence of Aramis, who had returned from Belle-Isle, and been nominated by Monsieur Fouquet, inspector-general of all the arrangements, his perseverance in mixing himself up with all the surintendant's affairs, his visits to Baisemeaux, all this suspicious singularity of conduct, had excessively troubled and tormented D'Artagnan during the last two weeks. With men of Aramis's stamp, he said, one is never the stronger except sword in hand. So long as Aramis continued a soldier, there was hope of getting the better of him, but since he has covered his cuirass with a stole, we are lost. But what can Aramis's object possibly be? And D'Artagnan plunged again into deep thought. What does it matter to me, after all, he continued, if his only object is to overthrow Monsieur Colbert? And what else can he be after? And D'Artagnan rubbed his forehead, that fertile land whence the plowshare of his nails had turned up so many and such admirable ideas in his time. He, at first, thought of talking the matter over with Colbert, but his friendship for Aramis, 
the oath of earlier days, bound him too strictly. He revolted at the bare idea of such a thing, and besides, he hated the financier too cordially. Then again, he wished to unburden his mind to the king, but yet the king would not be able to understand the suspicions which had not even a shadow of reality at their base. He resolved to address himself to Aramis, direct, the first time he met him. "'I will get him,' said the musketeer, "'between a couple of candles, suddenly, and when he least expects it, I will place my hand upon his heart, and he will tell me—' "'What will he tell me?' "'Yes, he will tell me something, for, mordieu, there is something in it, I know.' Somewhat calmer, D'Artagnan made every preparation for the journey, and took the greatest care that the military household of the king, as yet very inconsiderable in numbers, should be well officered and well disciplined in its meagre and limited proportions. The result was that, through the captain's arrangements, the king, on arriving at Melun, saw himself at the head of both the musketeers and Swiss guards, as well as a picket of the French guards. It might almost have been called a small army. Monsieur Colbert looked at the troops with great delight. He even wished they had been a third more in number. "'But why?' said the king. "'In order to show greater honour to Monsieur Fouquet,' replied Colbert. "'In order to ruin him the sooner,' thought D'Artagnan. When this little army appeared before Melun, the chief magistrates came out to meet the king, and to present him with the keys of the city, and invited him to enter the Hôtel de Ville, in order to partake of the wine of honour. The king, who expected to pass through the city and to proceed to Vaux without delay, became quite red in the face from vexation. "'Who was fool enough to occasion this delay?' muttered the king, between his teeth, as the chief magistrate was in the middle of a long address. "'Not I, certainly,' replied D'Artagnan. "'But I believe it was Monsieur Colbert.' Colbert, having heard his name pronounced, said— what was Monsieur d'Artagnan good enough to say? I was good enough to remark that it was you who stopped the king's progress, so that he might taste the vin de Brie. Was I right? Quite so, monsieur. In that case, then, it was you whom the king called some name or other. What name? I hardly know, but wait a moment. Idiot, I think it was. No, no, it was... Fool or dolt, yes, his majesty said that the man who had thought of the vin de Melun was something of the sort. D'Artagnan, after this broadside, quietly caressed his moustache. Monsieur Colbert's large head seemed to become larger and larger than ever. D'Artagnan, seeing how ugly anger made him, did not stop halfway. The orator still went on with his speech, while the king's color was visibly increasing. Mordieu! said the musketeer coolly, the king is going to have an attack of determination of blood to the head. Where the deuce did you get hold of that idea, Monsieur Colbert? You have no luck. Monsieur, said the financier, drawing himself up, my zeal for the king's service inspired me with the idea. Bah! Monsieur, Melon is a city, an excellent city, which pays well, and which it would be imprudent to displease. There, now, I, who do not pretend to be a financier, saw only one idea in your idea. 
What was that, monsieur? That of causing a little annoyance to monsieur Fouquet, who is making himself quite giddy on his donjons yonder, in waiting for us. This was a home-stroke, hard enough in all conscience. Colbert was completely thrown out of the saddle by it, and retired, thoroughly discomfited. Fortunately, the speech was now at an end. The king drank the wine which was presented to him, and then every one resumed the progress through the city. The king bit his lips in anger, for the evening was closing in, and all hope of a walk with La Valliere was at an end. In order that the whole of the king's household should enter Vaux, four hours at least were necessary, owing to the different arrangements. The king, therefore, who was boiling with impatience, hurried forward as much as possible, in order to reach it before nightfall. But, at the moment he was setting off again, other and fresh difficulties arose. "'Is not the king going to sleep at Melun?' said Colbert, in a low tone of voice, to D'Artagnan. Monsieur Colbert must have been badly inspired that day, to address himself in that manner to the chief of the musketeers, for the latter guessed that the king's intention was very far off from that of remaining where he was. D'Artagnan would not allow him to enter Vaux, except he were well and strongly accompanied, and desired that his majesty would not enter except with all the escort. On the other hand, he felt that these delays would irritate that impatient monarch beyond measure. In what way could he possibly reconcile these difficulties? D'Artagnan took up Colbert's remark, and determined to repeat it to the king. "'Sire,' he said, "'Monsieur Colbert has been asking me if your majesty does not intend to sleep at Melun.' "'Sleep at Melun? What for?' exclaimed Louis the Fourteenth. "'Sleep at Melun! Who, in heaven's name, can have thought of such a thing, when Monsieur Fouquet is expecting us this evening?' "'It was simply,' replied Colbert quickly, "'the fear of causing your majesty the least delay, for, according to established etiquette, you cannot enter any place, with the exception of your own royal residences,' until the soldiers' quarters have been marked out by the quartermaster, and the garrison properly distributed. D'Artagnan listened with the greatest attention, biting his moustache to conceal his vexation, and the queens were not less interested. They were fatigued, and would have preferred to go to rest without proceeding any farther, more especially, in order to prevent the king walking about in the evening with Monsieur de Saint-Aignan and the ladies of the court, for, if etiquette required the princesses to remain within their own rooms, the ladies of honour, as soon as they had performed the services required of them, had no restrictions placed upon them, but were at liberty to walk about as they pleased. It will easily be conjectured that all these rival interests, gathering together in vapours, necessarily produced clouds, and that the clouds were likely to be followed by a tempest. The king had no moustache to gnaw, and therefore kept biting the handle of his whip instead, with ill-concealed impatience. How could he get out of it? D'Artagnan looked as agreeable as possible, and Colbert as sulky as he could. Who was there he could get in a passion with? "'We will consult the Queen,' said Louis the Fourteenth, bowing to the royal ladies, and this kindness of consideration softened Maria Theresa's heart, who, being of a kind and generous disposition, when left to her own free will, replied, 
"'I shall be delighted to do whatever your majesty wishes.' "'How long will it take us to get to Vaux?' inquired Anne of Austria, in slow and measured accents, placing her hand upon her bosom, where the seat of her pain lay. "'An hour for your majesty's carriages,' said D'Artagnan. "'The roads are tolerably good.' The king looked at him. "'And a quarter of an hour for the king,' he hastened to add. "'We should arrive by daylight,' said Louis the Fourteenth. "'But the billeting of the king's military escort,' objected Colbert, softly, "'will make his majesty lose all the advantage of his speed, however quick he may be.' "'Double ass that you are,' thought D'Artagnan. "'If I had any interest or motive in demolishing your credit with the king, I could do it in ten minutes.' "'If I were in the king's place,' he added aloud, "'I should, in going to Monsieur Fouquet, leave my escort behind me. I should go to him as a friend. I should enter accompanied only by my captain of the guards. I should consider that I was acting more nobly, and should be invested with a still more sacred character by doing so.' Delight sparkled in the king's eyes. "'That is indeed a very sensible suggestion.' We will go to see a friend as friends. The gentlemen who are with the carriages can go slowly, but we who are mounted will ride on. And he rode off, accompanied by all those who were mounted. Colbert hid his ugly head behind his horse's neck. I shall be quits, said D'Artagnan, as he galloped along, by getting a little talk with Aramis this evening. And then, Monsieur Fouquet is a man of honor. Mordieu! I have said so, and it must be so. And this was the way how, towards seven o'clock in the evening, without announcing his arrival by the din of trumpets, and without even his advanced guard, without outriders or musketeers, the king presented himself before the gate of Vaux, where Fouquet, who had been informed of his royal guest's approach, had been waiting for the last half-hour, with his head uncovered, surrounded by his household and his friends. End of chapter. Chapter 13 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas Chapter 13 Nectar and Ambrosia Monsieur Fouquet held the stirrup of the king, who, having dismounted, bowed most graciously, and more graciously still held out his hand to him, which Fouquet, in spite of a slight resistance on the king's part, carried respectfully to his lips. The king wished to wait in the first courtyard for the arrival of the carriages, nor had he long to wait, for the roads had been put into excellent order by the superintendent, and a stone would hardly have been found of the size of an egg the whole way from Melun de Vaux, so that the carriages, rolling along as though on a carpet, brought the ladies to Vaux, without jolting or fatigue, by eight o'clock. They were received by Madame Fouquet, and at the moment they made their appearance, a light as bright as day burst forth from every quarter, trees, vases, and marble statues. This species of enchantment lasted until their majesties had retired into the palace. All these wonders and magical effects which the chronicler has heaped up 
or rather embalmed, in his recital, at the risk of rivaling the brain-born scenes of romancers, these splendors whereby night seemed vanquished, and nature corrected, together with every delight and luxury combined for the satisfaction of all the senses, as well as the imagination, Fouquet did in real truth offer to his sovereign in that enchanting retreat, of which no monarch could at that time boast of possessing an equal. We do not intend to describe the grand banquet at which the royal guests were present, nor the concerts, nor the fairy-like and more than magic transformations and metamorphoses. It will be enough for our purpose to depict the countenance the king assumed, which, from being gay, soon wore a very gloomy, constrained, and irritated expression. He remembered his own residence, royal though it was, and the mean and indifferent style of luxury that prevailed there, which comprised but little more than what was merely useful for the royal wants, without being his own personal property. The large vases of the Louvre, the older furniture and plate of Henry II, of Francis I, and of Louis XI, were but historic monuments of earlier days, nothing but specimens of art, the relics of his predecessors, while with Fouquet, the value of the article was as much in the workmanship as in the article itself. Fouquet ate from a gold service, which artists in his own employ had modelled and cast for him alone. Fouquet drank wines of which the King of France did not even know the name, and drank them out of goblets, each more valuable than the entire royal cellar. What, too, was to be said of the apartments, the hangings, the pictures, the servants and officers, of every description of his household? What of the mode of service in which etiquette was replaced by order, stiff formality by personal unrestrained comfort? The happiness and contentment of the guest became the supreme law of all who obeyed the host. The perfect swarm of busily engaged persons moving about noiselessly, the multitude of guests, who were, however, even less numerous than the servants who waited on them, the myriad of exquisitely prepared dishes, of gold and silver vases, the floods of dazzling light, the masses of unknown flowers of which the hothouses had been despoiled, redundant with luxuriance of unequalled scent and beauty, the perfect harmony of the surroundings, which, indeed, was no more than the prelude of the promised fete, charmed all who were there, and they testified their admiration over and over again, not by voice or gesture, but by deep silence and rapt attention, those two languages of the courtier which acknowledge the hand of no master powerful enough to restrain them. As for the king, his eyes filled with tears. He dared not look at the queen. Anne of Austria, whose pride was superior to that of any creature breathing, overwhelmed her host by the contempt with which she treated everything handed to her. The young queen, kind-hearted by nature and curious by disposition, praised Fouquet, ate with an exceedingly good appetite, and asked the names of the strange fruits as they were placed upon the table. Fouquet replied that he was not aware of their names. The fruits came from his own stores. He had often cultivated them himself, having an intimate acquaintance with the cultivation of exotic fruits and plants. The king felt and appreciated the delicacy of the replies, but was only the more humiliated. He thought the queen a little too familiar in her manners, 
and that Anne of Austria resembled Juno a little too much, in being too proud and haughty. His chief anxiety, however, was himself, that he might remain cold and distant in his behaviour, bordering lightly the limits of supreme disdain or simple admiration. But Fouquet had foreseen all this. He was, in fact, one of those men who foresee everything. The king had expressly declared that, so long as he remained under Fouquet's roof, he did not wish his own different repast to be served in accordance with the usual etiquette, and that he would, consequently, dine with the rest of society. But by the thoughtful attention of the surintendant, the king's dinner was served up separately, if one may so express it, in the middle of the general table. The dinner, wonderful in every respect, from the dishes of which was composed, comprised everything the king liked and generally preferred to anything else. Louis had no excuse. He, indeed, who had the keenest appetite in his kingdom, for saying that he was not hungry. Nay, Monsieur Fouquet did even better still. He certainly, in obedience to the king's expressed desire, seated himself at the table. But as soon as the soups were served, he arose and personally waited on the king, while Madame Fouquet stood behind the Queen Mother's armchair. The disdain of Juno, and the sulky fits of temper of Jupiter, could not resist this excess of kindly feeling and polite attention. The queen ate a biscuit dipped in a glass of Saint-Lucar wine, and the king ate of everything, saying to Monsieur Fouquet, "'It is impossible, Monsieur le Surintendant, to dine better anywhere.' Whereupon the whole court began, on all sides, to devour the dishes spread before them with such enthusiasm that it looked as though a cloud of Egyptian locusts were settling down on green and growing crops. As soon, however, as his hunger was appeased, the king became morose and overgloomed again, the more so in proportion to the satisfaction he fancied he had previously manifested, and particularly on account of the deferential manner which his courtiers had shown towards Fouquet. D'Artagnan, who ate a good deal and drank but little, without allowing it to be noticed, did not lose a single opportunity, but made a great number of observations which he turned to good profit. When the supper was finished, the king expressed a wish not to lose the promenade. The park was illuminated, the moon, too, as if she had placed herself at the orders of the Lord of Vaux, silvered the trees and lake with her own bright and quasi-phosphorescent light. The air was strangely soft and balmy. The daintily shell-graveled walks through the thickly-set avenues yielded luxuriantly to the feet. The fete was complete in every respect, for the king, having met La Valliere in one of the winding paths of the wood, was able to press her hand and say, I love you, without any one overhearing him except Monsieur d'Artagnan, who followed, and Monsieur Fouquet, who preceded him. The dreamy night of magical enchantments stole smoothly on. The king, having requested to be shown to his room, there was immediately a movement in every direction. The queens passed to their own apartments, accompanied by the music of Fiorbos and lutes. The king found his musketeers awaiting him on the grand flight of steps, for Monsieur Fouquet had brought them on from Melun, and had invited them to supper. D'Artagnan's suspicions at once disappeared. He was weary, he had supped well, and wished, for once in his life, 
thoroughly to enjoy a fete given by a man who was in every sense of the word a king monsieur fouquet he said is the man for me the king was conducted with the greatest ceremony to the chamber of morpheus of which we owe some cursory description to our readers it was the handsomest and largest in the palace lebrun had painted on the vaulted ceiling the happy as well as the unhappy dreams which morpheus inflicts on kings as well as on other men everything that sleep gives birth to that is lovely its fairy scenes its flowers and nectar the wild voluptuousness or profound repose of the senses had the painter elaborated on his frescoes it was a composition as soft and pleasing in one part as dark and gloomy and terrible in another the poisoned chalice the glittering dagger suspended over the head of the sleeper wizards and phantoms with terrific masks those half-dim shadows more alarming than the approach of fire or the sombre face of midnight these and such as these he had made the companions of his more pleasing pictures no sooner had the king entered his room than a cold shiver seemed to pass through him and on fouquet asking him the cause of it the king replied as pale as death i am sleepy that is all does your majesty wish for your attendance at once no i have to talk with a few persons first said the king will you have the goodness to tell monsieur colbert that i wish to see him fouquet bowed and left the room End of chapter Chapter Fourteen of *The Man in the Iron Mask*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. *The Man in the Iron Mask* by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter Fourteen: A Gascon and a Gascon and a Half. D'Artagnan had determined to lose no time, and in fact he never was in the habit of doing so. After having inquired for Aramis, he had looked for him in every direction until he had succeeded in fighting him. Besides, no sooner had the king entered Vaux than Aramis had retired to his own room, meditating, doubtless, some new piece of gallant attention for his majesty's amusement. D'Artagnan desired the servants to announce him, and found on the second story, in a beautiful room called the Blue Chamber, on account of the color of its hangings, the bishop of vannes in company with porthos and several of the modern epicureans aramis came forward to embrace his friend and offered him the best seat as it was after a while generally remarked among those present that the musketeer was reserved and wished for an opportunity for conversing secretly with aramis the epicureans took their leave porthos however did not stir for true it is that having dined exceedingly well he was fast asleep in his armchair, and the freedom of conversation therefore was not interrupted by a third person. Porthos had a deep, harmonious snore, and people might talk in the midst of its loud bass without fear of disturbing him. D'Artagnan felt that he was called upon to open the conversation. "'Well, and so we have come to Vaux,' he said. "'Why, yes, D'Artagnan, and how do you like the place?' very much and i like monsieur fouquet also 
Is he not a charming host? No one could be more so. I am told that the king began by showing great distance of manner towards Monsieur Fouquet, but that his majesty grew much more cordial afterwards. You did not notice it, then, since you say you have been told so? No, I was engaged with the gentlemen who have just left the room about the theatrical performances and the tournaments, which are to take place to-morrow. Ah, indeed! You are the Comptroller-General of the Fets here, then? You know I am a friend of all kinds of amusement where the exercise of the imagination is called into activity. I have always been a poet in one way or another. Yes, I remember the verses you used to write. They were charming. <laughs> I have forgotten them, but I am delighted to read the verses of others, when those others are known by the names of Molière, Pelisson, La Fontaine, etc., do you know what idea occurred to me this evening, Aramis? No, tell me what it is, for I should never be able to guess it. You have so many. Well, the idea occurred to me that the true king of France is not Louis the Fourteenth. What? said Aramis involuntarily, looking the musketeer full in the eyes. No, it is Monsieur Fouquet. Aramis breathed again and smiled. Ah! You are like all the rest, jealous, he said. I would wager that it was Monsieur Colbert who turned that pretty phrase. D'Artagnan, in order to throw Aramis off his guard, related Colbert's misadventures with regard to the Vin de Melun. He comes of a mean race, does Colbert, said Aramis. Quite true. When I think, too, added the bishop, that that fellow will be your minister within four months, and that you will serve him as blindly as you did Richelieu or Mazarin, and as you serve Monsieur Fouquet, said D'Artagnan. With this difference, though, that Monsieur Fouquet is not Monsieur Colbert. True, true, said D'Artagnan, as he pretended to become sad and full of reflection, and then a moment after he added, why do you tell me that Monsieur Colbert will be minister in four months? Because Monsieur Fouquet will have ceased to be so, replied Aramis. He will be ruined, you mean, said D'Artagnan. Completely so. Why does he give these fets then? said the musketeer, in a tone so full of thoughtful consideration, and so well assumed, that the bishop was for the moment deceived by it. Why did you not dissuade him from it? The latter part of the phrase was just a little too much, and Aramis's former suspicions were again aroused. It is done with the object of humouring the king. By ruining himself? Yes, by ruining himself for the king. A most eccentric, one might say, sinister calculation, that. Necessity. Necessity, my friend. I don't see that, dear Aramis. Do you not? Have you not remarked Monsieur Colbert's daily increasing antagonism, and that he is doing his utmost to drive the king to get rid of the superintendent? One must be blind not to see it. And that a cable is already armed against Monsieur Fouquet. That is well known. 
what likelihood is there that the king would join a party formed against a man who will have spent everything he had to please him true true said d'artagnan slowly hardly convinced yet curious to broach another phase of the conversation there are follies and follies he resumed and i do not like those you are committing what do you allude to as for the banquet the ball the concert the theatricals the tournaments the cascades the fireworks the illuminations and the presents these are well and good i grant but why were not these expenses sufficient why was it necessary to have new liveries and costumes for your whole household you are quite right i told monsieur fouquet that myself he replied that if he were rich enough he would offer the king a newly erected chateau from the veins at the houses to the very sub-cellars completely new inside and out and that as soon as the king had left he would burn the whole building and its contents in order that it might not be made use of by any one else how completely spanish <laughs> i told him so and he then added this whoever advises me to spare expense i shall look upon as my enemy it is positive madness and that portrait too what portrait said aramis that of the king and the surprise as well what surprise the surprise you seem to have in view and on account of which you took some specimens away when i met you at percerin's d'artagnan paused the shaft was discharged and all he had to do was wait and watch its effect that is merely an act of graceful attention replied aramis d'artagnan went up to his friend took hold of both his hands and looking him full in the eyes said aramis do you still care for me a very little what a question to ask very good one favor then why did you take some patterns of the king's costumes at percerin's come with me and ask poor lebrun who has been working upon them for the last two days and nights aramis that may be truth for everybody else but for me upon my word d'artagnan you astonish me be a little considerate tell me the exact truth you would not like anything disagreeable to happen to me would you my dear friend you are becoming quite incomprehensible what suspicion can you have possibly got hold of do you believe in my instinctive feelings formerly you used to have faith in them well then an instinct tells me that you have some concealed project on foot i a project i am convinced of it what nonsense i am not only sure of it but i would even swear it indeed d'artagnan you cause me the greatest pain is it likely if i have any project in hand that i ought to keep secret from you i should tell you about it if i had one that i could and ought to have revealed should i not have long ago divulged it no aramis no there are certain projects which are never revealed until the favorable opportunity arrives in that case my dear fellow returned the bishop laughing 
The only thing now is that the opportunity has not yet arrived. D'Artagnan shook his head with a sorrowful expression. Oh, friendship, friendship, he said. What an idle word you are. Here is a man who, if I were but to ask it, would suffer himself to be cut in pieces for my sake. You are right, said Aramis nobly. And this man, who would shed every drop of blood in his veins for me, will not open up before me the least corner in his heart. Friendship, I repeat, is nothing but an unsubstantial shadow, a lure, like everything else in this bright, dazzling world. It is not thus you should speak of our friendship, replied the bishop in a firm, assured voice, for ours is not of the same nature as those of which you have been speaking. Look at us, Aramis, three out of the old four. You are deceiving me, I suspect you, and Porthos is fast asleep. An admirable trio of friends, don't you think so? What an affecting relic of the former dear old times. I can only tell you one thing, D'Artagnan, and I swear it on the Bible. I love you just as I used to do. If I ever suspect you, it is on account of others, and not on account of either of us. In everything I may do, and should happen to succeed in, you will find your fourth. Will you promise me the same favor? If I am not mistaken, Aramis, your words, at the moment you pronounce them, are full of generous feeling. Such a thing is very possible. You are conspiring against Monsieur Colbert. If that be all, Mordio, tell me so at once. I have the instrument in my own hand and will pull out the tooth easily enough. Aramis could not conceal a smile of disdain that flitted over his haughty features. And supposing that I were conspiring against Colbert, what harm would there be in that? No, no, that would be too trifling a matter for you to take in hand, and it was not on that account you asked Perserin for those patterns of the king's costumes. Oh, Aramis, we are not enemies, remember? We are brothers. Tell me what you wish to undertake, and upon the word of a Tartanian, if I cannot help you, I will swear to remain neuter. I am undertaking nothing, said Aramis. Aramis, a voice within me speaks, and seems to trickle forth a rill of light within my darkness. It is a voice that has never yet deceived me. It is the king you are conspiring against. The king! exclaimed the bishop, pretending to be annoyed. Your face will not convince me. The king, I repeat. Will you help me? said Aramis, smiling ironically. Aramis, I will do more than help you. I will do more than remain neuter. I will save you. <laughs> you are mad, D'Artagnan. I am the wiser of the two in this matter. You to suspect me of wishing to assassinate the king? Who spoke of such a thing? smiled the musketeer. Well, let us understand one another. I do not see what any one can do to a legitimate king as ours is, if he does not assassinate him. D'Artagnan did not say a word. Besides, you have your guards and your musketeers here, said the bishop. True. 
You are not in Monsieur Fouquet's house, but in your own. True, but in spite of that, Aramis, grant me, for pity's sake, one single word of a true friend. A true friend's word is ever truth itself. If I think of touching, even with my finger, the son of Anne of Austria, the true king of this realm of France, if I have not the firm intention of prostrating myself before his throne, if in every idea I may entertain to-morrow, here at Vaux, will not be the most glorious day my king ever enjoyed, may heaven's lightning blast me where I stand. Aramis had pronounced these words with his face turned toward the alcove of his own bedroom, where D'Artagnan, seated with his back towards the alcove, could not suspect that anyone was lying concealed. The earnestness of his words, the studied slowness with which he pronounced them, the solemnity of his oath, gave the musketeer the most complete satisfaction. He took hold of both Aramis's hands and shook them cordially. Aramis had endured reproaches without turning pale, and had blushed as he listened to words of praise. D'Artagnan, deceived, did him honour, but D'Artagnan, trustful and reliant, made him feel ashamed. "'Are you going away?' he said, as he embraced him in order to conceal the flush on his face. "'Yes, duty summons me. I have to get the watchword. It seems I am to be lodged in the king's ante-room. Where does Porthos sleep?' "'Take him away with you, if you like, for he rumbles through his sleepy nose like a park of artillery.' "'Ah, he does not stay with you, then?' said D'Artagnan. Not the least in the world. He has a chamber to himself, but I don't know where. Very good, said the musketeer, from whom this separation of the two associates removed his last suspicion, and he touched Porthos lightly on the shoulder. The latter replied by a loud yawn. Come, said D'Artagnan. What? Ah, D'Artagnan, my dear fellow, is that you? What a lucky chance! Ah, yes. True, I have forgotten. I am at the fête in Vaux. Yes, and your beautiful dress, too. Yes, it was very attentive on the part of Monsieur Coquelin de Voliere, was it not? Hush, said Aramis. You are walking so heavily you will make the flooring give way. True, said the musketeer. This room is above the dome, I think and I did not choose it for a fencing-room, I assure you," added the bishop. The ceiling of the king's room has all the lightness and calm of wholesome sleep. Do not forget, therefore, that my flooring is merely the covering of his ceiling. Good night, my friends, and in ten minutes I shall be asleep myself. And Aramis accompanied them to the door, laughing quietly all the while. As soon as they were outside, he bolted the door hurriedly closed up the chinks of the windows, and then called out, "'Monseigneur! Monseigneur!' Philippe made his appearance from the alcove as he pushed aside a sliding panel placed behind the bed. "'Monsieur d'Artagnan entertains a great many suspicions, it seems,' he said. "'Ah! You recognize Monsieur d'Artagnan, then?' "'Before you called him by his name, even.' "'He is your captain of musketeers.' He is very devoted to me, replied Philippe, laying a stress upon the personal pronoun. 
as faithful as a dog, but he bites sometimes. If D'Artagnan does not recognize you before the other has disappeared, rely upon D'Artagnan to the end of the world, for in that case, if he has seen nothing, he will keep his fidelity. If he sees when it is too late, he is a Gascon, and will never admit that he has been deceived. I thought so. What are we to do now? Sit in this folding chair. I am going to push aside a portion of the flooring. You will look through the opening, which answers to one of the false windows made in the dome of the king's apartment. Can you see? Yes, said Philippe, starting as at the sight of an enemy. I see the king. What is he doing? He seems to wish some man to sit down close to him. Monsieur Fouquet? No. no. Wait a moment. Look at the notes and the portraits, my prince. The man whom the king wishes to sit down in his presence is Monsieur Colbert. Colbert sit down in the king's presence? exclaimed Aramis. It is impossible. Look. Aramis looked through the opening in the floor. Yes, he said. Colbert himself. Oh, Monseigneur, what can we be going to hear, and what can result from this intimacy? Nothing good for Monsieur Fouquet, at all events. The prince did not deceive himself. We have seen that Louis the Fourteenth had sent for Colbert, and Colbert had arrived. The conversation began between them by the king according to him one of the highest favors that he had ever done. It was true the king was alone with his subject. Colbert, said he, sit down. The intendant, overcome with delight, for he feared he was about to be dismissed, refused this unprecedented honor. Does he accept? said Aramis. No, he remains standing. Let us listen, then. And the future king and the future pope listened eagerly to the simple mortals they held under their feet, ready to crush them when they liked. Colbert, said the king, you have annoyed me exceedingly to-day. I know it, sire. Very good. I like that answer. Yes, you knew it, and there was courage in the doing of it. I ran the risk of displeasing your majesty, but I risked also the concealment of your best interests. What? You were afraid of something on my account? I was, sire, even if it were nothing more than an indigestion, said Colbert. For people do not give their sovereigns such banquets as the one of to-day, unless it be to stifle them beneath the burden of good living. Colbert awaited the effect this coarse jest would produce upon the king, and Louis the Fourteenth, who was the vainest and the most fastidiously delicate man in his kingdom, forgave Colbert the joke. The truth is, he said, that Monsieur Fouquet has given me too good a meal. Tell me, Colbert, where does he get all the money required for this enormous expenditure? Can you tell? Yes, I do know, sire. Will you be able to prove it with tolerable certainty? Easily, and to the utmost farthing. I know you are very exact. 
"'Exactitude is the principal qualification required in an intendant of finances.' "'But all are not so.' "'I thank your majesty for so flattering a compliment from your own lips.' "'Monsieur Fouquet, therefore, is rich, very rich, and I suppose every man knows he is so.' "'Every one, sire, the living as well as the dead.' What does that mean, Monsieur Colbert? The living are witnesses of Monsieur Fouquet's wealth. They admire and applaud the result produced. But the dead, wiser and better informed than we are, know how that wealth was obtained, and they rise up in accusation. So that Monsieur Fouquet owes his wealth to some cause or other, the occupation of an intended very often favours those who practise it. You have something to say to me more confidentially, I perceive. Do not be afraid, we are quite alone. I am never afraid of anything under the shelter of my own conscience, and under the protection of your majesty, said Colbert, bowing. If the dead, therefore, were to speak— they do speak sometimes, sire. Read. Ah, murmured Aramis in the prince's ear, beside him, listened without losing a syllable. Since you are placed here, monseigneur, in order to learn your vocation of a king, listen to a piece of infamy, of a nature truly royal. You are about to be a witness of one of those scenes which the foul fiend alone conceives and executes. Listen attentively. You will find your advantage in it. The prince redoubled his attention, and saw Louis the Fourteenth take from Colbert's hands a letter. The latter held out to him. The late cardinal's handwriting, said the king. Your majesty has an excellent memory, replied Colbert, bowing. It is an immense advantage for a king who is destined for hard work, to recognize handwritings at the first glance. The king read Mazarin's letter, and as its contents are already known to the reader, in consequence of the misunderstanding between Madame de Chevreuse and Aramis, nothing further would be learned if we stated them here again. "'I do not quite understand,' said the king, greatly interested." Your Majesty has not acquired the utilitarian habit of checking the public accounts. I see that it refers to money that has been given to Monsieur Fouquet. Thirteen millions! A tolerably good sum! Yes, well, these thirteen millions are wanting to balance the total of the account. That is what I do not very well understand. How was this deficit possible? Possible, I do not say, but there is no doubt about fact that it is really so. You say that these thirteen millions are found to be wanting in the accounts? I do not say so, but the registry does. And this letter of Monsieur Mazarin indicates the employment of that sum, and the name of the person with whom it was deposited? as your majesty can judge for yourself. Yes, and the result is, then, 
that Monsieur Fouquet has not yet restored the thirteen millions. That results from the accounts, certainly, sire. Well, and consequently? Well, sire, in that case, inasmuch as Monsieur Fouquet has not given back the thirteen millions, he must have appropriated them to his own purpose. And with those thirteen millions one could incur four times and a little more as much expense, and make four times as great a display as your majesty was able to do at Fontainebleau, where we only spent three millions altogether, if you remember. For a blunderer, the souvenir he had evoked was a rather skilfully contrived piece of baseness, for by remembrance of his own fete he, for the first time, perceived its inferiority compared with that of Fouquet. Colbert received back again at Vaux what Fouquet had given him at Fontainebleau, and, as a good financier, returned it with the best possible interest. Having once disposed the king's mind in this artful way, Colbert had nothing of much importance to detain him. He felt that such was the case, for the king, too, had again sunk into a dull and gloomy state. Colbert awaited the first words from the king's lips with as much impatience as Philippe and Aramis did from their place of observation. "'Are you aware what is the usual and natural consequence of all this, Monsieur Colbert?' said the king, after a few moments' reflection. "'No, sire, I do not know.' "'Well, then, the fact of the appropriation of the thirteen millions, if it can be proved—' "'But it is so already.' "'I mean, if it were to be—' declared and certified monsieur colbert i think it will be to-morrow if your majesty were we not under monsieur fouquet's roof you were going to say perhaps replied the king with something of nobility in his demeanour the king is in his own palace wherever he may be especially in houses which the royal money has constructed i think said philippe in a low tone to aramis that the architect who planned this dome ought anticipating the use it could be put to at a future opportunity so to have contrived that it might be made to fall upon the heads of scoundrels such as monsieur colbert i think so too replied aramis but monsieur colbert is so very near the king at the moment that is true and that would open the succession of which your younger brother would reap all the advantage, Monseigneur. But stay, let us keep quiet, and go on listening. We shall not have long to listen, said the young prince. Why not, Monseigneur? Because, if I were king, I should make no further reply. And what would you do? I should wait until to-morrow morning to give myself time for reflection. Louis Fourteenth at last raised his eyes, and, finding Colbert attentively waiting for his next remarks, said hastily, changing the conversation, "'Monsieur Colbert, I perceive it is getting very late, and I shall now retire to bed. By to-morrow morning I shall have made up my mind.' "'Very good, sire,' returned Colbert, greatly incensed, though he restrained himself in the presence of the king. The king made a gesture of adieu, 
and Colbert withdrew with a respectful bow. "'My attendants!' cried the king, and as they entered the apartment, Philippe was about to quit his post of observation. "'A moment longer,' said Aramis to him, with his accustomed gentleness of manner. "'What has just now taken place is only a detail, and to-morrow we shall have no occasion to think anything more about it. But the ceremony of the king's retiring to rest, the etiquette observed in addressing the king, that indeed is of the greatest importance. Learn, sire, and study well how you ought to go to bed of a night. Look, look. End of chapter. Chapter 15 of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 15 Colbert. History will tell us, or rather, history has told us, of the various events of the following day of the splendid fetes given by the surintendant to his sovereign. Nothing but amusement and delight was allowed to prevail throughout the whole of the following day. There was a promenade, a banquet, a comedy to be acted, and a comedy, too, in which, to his great amazement, Porthos recognized Monsieur Coquelin de Voliere as one of the actors in the piece called Les Facheurs. Full of preoccupation, however, from the scene of the previous evening, and hardly recovered from the effects of the poison which Colbert had then administered to him, the king, during the whole of the day, so brilliant in its effects, so full of unexpected and startling novelties, in which all the wonders of the Arabian Nights' entertainments seemed to be reproduced for his especial amusement, the king, we say, showed himself cold, reserved, and taciturn. Nothing could smooth the frowns upon his face, Every one who observed him noticed that a deep feeling of resentment, of remote origin, increased by slow degrees, as the source becomes a river, thanks to the thousand threads of water that increase its body, was keenly alive in the depths of the king's heart. Towards the middle of the day, only, did he begin to resume a little serenity of manner, and by that time he had, in all probability, made up his mind. Aramis, who followed him step by step in his thoughts, as in his walk, concluded that the event he was expecting would not be long before it was announced. This time Colbert seemed to walk in concert with the Bishop of Vannes, and had he received for every annoyance which he inflicted on the king a word of direction from Aramis, he could not have done better. During the whole of the day the king, who, in all probability, wished to free himself from some of the thoughts which disturbed his mind, seemed to seek La Valliere's society as actively as he seemed to show his anxiety to flee that of Monsieur Colbert or Monsieur Fouquet. The evening came. The king had expressed a wish not to walk in the park until after cards in the evening. In the interval between supper and the promenade, cards and dice were introduced, the king won a thousand pistoles, and, having won them, put them in his pocket, and then rose, saying, "'And now, gentlemen, to the park.' He found the ladies of the court were already there. 
the king we have before observed had won a thousand pistoles and had put them in his pocket but monsieur fouquet had somehow contrived to lose ten thousand so that among the courtiers there was still left a hundred and ninety thousand francs profit to divide a circumstance which made the countenances of the courtiers and the officers of the king's household the most joyous countenances in the world it was not the same however with the king's face for notwithstanding his success at play to which he was by no means insensible there still remained a slight shade of dissatisfaction colbert was waiting for or upon him at the corner of one of the avenues he was most probably waiting there in consequence of a rendezvous which had been given him by the king as louis the fourteenth who had avoided him or who had seemed to avoid him suddenly made him a sign and they then struck into the depths of the park together but la valliere too had observed the king's gloomy aspect and kindling glances she had remarked this and as nothing which lay hidden or smouldering in his heart was hidden from the gaze of her affection she understood that this repressed wrath menaced someone she prepared to withstand the current of his vengeance and intercede like an angel of mercy overcome by sadness nervously agitated deeply distressed at having been so long separated from her lover disturbed at the sight of the emotion she had divined she accordingly presented herself to the king with an embarrassed aspect which in his then disposition of mind the king interpreted unfavorably then as they were alone nearly alone inasmuch as colbert as soon as he perceived the young girl approaching had stopped and drawn back a dozen paces the king advanced towards la valliere and took her by the hand mademoiselle he said to her should i be guilty of an indiscretion if i were to inquire if you were indisposed for you seem to breathe as if you were oppressed by some secret cause of uneasiness and your eyes are filled with tears oh sire if i be indeed so and if my eyes are indeed full of tears i am sorrowful only at the sadness which seems to oppress your majesty my sadness you are mistaken mademoiselle no it is not sadness i experience what is it then sire humiliation humiliation oh sire what a word for you to use i mean mademoiselle that wherever i may happen to be no one else ought to be the master well then look round you on every side and judge whether i am not eclipsed i the king of france before the monarch of these wide domains oh he continued clenching his hands and teeth when i think that this king well sire said louise terrified that this king is a faithless unworthy servant who grows proud and self-sufficient upon the strength of property that belongs to me and which he has stolen and therefore i am about to change this impudent minister's fete into sorrow and mourning of which the nymph of vaux as the poets say shall not soon lose the remembrance oh your majesty well mademoiselle are you about to take monsieur fouquet's part said louis impatiently no sire i will only ask whether you are well informed your majesty has more than once learned the value of accusations made at court 
Louis the Fourteenth made a sign for Colbert to approach. "'Speak, Monsieur Colbert,' said the young prince, for I almost believe that Mademoiselle de la Valliere has need of your assistance before she can put any faith in the king's word. Tell Mademoiselle what Monsieur Fouquet has done, and you, Mademoiselle, will perhaps have the kindness to listen. It will not be long. Why did Louis the Fourteenth insist upon it in such a manner? A very simple reason. His heart was not at rest. His mind was not thoroughly convinced there lay some dark, hidden, tortuous intrigue behind these thirteen millions of francs, and he wished that the pure heart of La Valliere, which had revolted at the idea of theft or robbery, should approve, even were it only by a single word, the resolution he had taken, and which nevertheless he hesitated before carrying into execution. "'Speak, monsieur,' said La Valliere to Colbert, who had advanced. "'Speak.' since the king wishes me to listen to you. Tell me, what is the crime with which Monsieur Fouquet is charged? Oh, not very highness, mademoiselle, he returned. A mere abuse of confidence. Speak, speak, Colbert, and when you have related it, leave us, and go and inform Monsieur d'Artagnan that I have certain orders to give him. Monsieur d'Artagnan, sire, exclaimed la valliere but why send for monsieur d'artagnan i entreat you to tell me pardieu in order to arrest this haughty arrogant titan who true to his menace threatens to scale my heaven arrest monsieur fouquet do you say ah does that surprise you in his own house why not if he be guilty he is as guilty in his own house as anywhere else Monsieur Fouquet, who at this moment is ruining himself for his sovereign. In plain truth, mademoiselle, it seems as if you were defending this traitor. Colbert began to chuckle silently. The king turned round at the sound of this suppressed mirth. Sire, said La Valliere, it is not Monsieur Fouquet I am defending. It is yourself. Me. You are defending me. "'Sire, you would dishonour yourself if you were to give such an order.' "'Dishonour myself,' murmured the king, turning pale with anger. "'In plain truth, mademoiselle, you show a strange persistence in what you say.' "'If I do, sire, my only motive is that of serving your majesty,' replied the noble-hearted girl. "'For that I would risk. I would sacrifice my very life without the least reserve.' Colbert seemed inclined to grumble and complain. La Valliere, that timid, gentle lamb, turned round upon him, and with a glance like lightning imposed silence upon him. Monsieur, she said, when the king acts well, whether, in doing so, he does either myself or those who belong to me an injury, I have nothing to say. But were the king to confer a benefit either upon me or mine, and if he acted badly, I should tell him so. But it appears to me, mademoiselle, Colbert ventured to say, that I too love the king. Yes, monseigneur, we both love him, but each in a different manner, replied La Valliere, with such an accent that the heart of the young king was powerfully affected by it. 
I love him so deeply that the whole world is aware of it, so purely that the king himself does not doubt my affection. He is my king and my master. I am the least of all his servants. But whoso touches his honour assails my life. Therefore, I repeat, that they dishonour the king who advise him to arrest Monsieur Fouquet under his own roof. Colbert hung down his head, for he felt that the king had abandoned him. However, as he bent his head, he murmured, Mademoiselle, I have only one word to say. Do not say it then, monsieur, for I would not listen to it. Besides, what could you have to tell me? That Monsieur Fouquet has been guilty of certain crimes? I believe he has, because the king has said so. And from the moment the king said, I think so, I have no occasion for other lips to say, I affirm it. But were Monsieur Fouquet the vilest of men, I should say aloud, Monsieur Fouquet's person is sacred to the king, because he is the guest of Monsieur Fouquet. Were his house a den of thieves, were Vaux a cave of coiners or robbers, his home is sacred, his palace is inviolable, since his wife is living in it, and that is an asylum which even executioners would not dare to violate. La Valliere paused and was silent. In spite of himself, the king could not but admire her. He was overpowered by the passionate energy of her voice, by the nobleness of the cause she advocated. Colbert yielded, overcome by the inequality of the struggle. At last the king breathed again more freely, shook his head, and held out his hand to La Valliere. Mademoiselle, he said gently, why do you decide against me? Do you know what this wretched fellow will do if I give him time to breathe again? Is he not a prey which will be always within your grasp? Should he escape and take to flight? exclaimed Colbert. Well, monsieur, it will always remain on record, to the king's eternal honour, that he allowed monsieur Fouquet to flee and the more guilty he may have been, the greater will the king's honour and glory appear, compared with such unnecessary misery and shame. Louis kissed La Valliere's hand as he knelt before her. I am lost, thought Colbert. Then suddenly his face brightened up again. Oh, no, no, ah, old fox, not yet, he said to himself. And while the king, protected from observation by the thick covert of an enormous lime, pressed La Valliere to his breast with all the ardour of ineffable affection, Colbert tranquilly fumbled among the papers in his pocket-book, and drew out of it a paper folded in the form of a letter, somewhat yellow, perhaps, but one that must have been most precious, since the intendant smiled as he looked at it. He then bent a look full of hatred upon the charming group which the young girl and the king formed together, a group revealed but for a moment, as the light of the approaching torches shone upon it. Louis noticed the light reflected upon La Valliere's white dress. "'Leave me, Louise,' he said, "'for someone is coming.' "'Mademoiselle, mademoiselle, someone is coming,' cried Colbert, to expedite the young girl's departure." Louise disappeared rapidly among the trees, and then, as the king, who had been on his knees before the young girl, was rising from his 
humble posture, Colbert exclaimed, "'Ah, Mademoiselle de la Valliere has let something fall.' "'What is it?' inquired the king. "'A paper, a letter, something white. Look there, sire.' The king stooped down immediately and picked up the letter, crumpling it in his hand as he did so, and at the same moment the torches arrived, inundating the blackness of the scene with a flood of light as bright as day. End of chapter. Chapter 16 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas Chapter 16 Jealousy The torches we have just referred to, the eager attention everyone displayed, and the new ovation paid to the king by Fouquet, arrived in time to suspend the effect of a resolution which La Valliere had already considerably shaken in Louis the Fourteenth's heart. He looked at Fouquet with a feeling almost of gratitude for having given La Valliere an opportunity of showing herself so generously disposed, so powerful in the influence she exercised over his heart. The moment of the last and greatest display had arrived. Hardly had Fouquet conducted the king towards the chateau, when a mass of fire burst from the dome of Vaux with a prodigious uproar pouring a flood of dazzling cataracts of rays on every side, and illumining the remotest corners of the gardens. The fireworks began. Colbert, at twenty paces from the king, who was surrounded and feted by the owner of Vaux, seemed, by the obstinate persistence of his gloomy thoughts, to do his utmost to recall Louis's attention, which the magnificence of the spectacle was already, in his opinion, too easily diverting. Suddenly, just as Louis was on the point of holding it out to Fouquet, he perceived in his hand the paper which, as he believed, La Valliere had dropped at his feet as she hurried away. The still stronger magnet of love drew the young prince's attention towards the souvenir of his idol, and by the brilliant light, which increased momentarily in beauty, and drew from the neighbouring villages loud cheers of admiration, the king read the letter, which he supposed was a loving and tender epistle La Valliere had destined for him. But as he read it, a death-like pallor stole over his face, and an expression of deep-seated wrath, illumined by the many-coloured fire which gleamed so brightly, soaringly around the scene, produced a terrible spectacle, which every one would have shuddered at could they only have read into his heart, now torn by the most stormy, and most bitter passions. There was no truce for him now, influenced as he was by jealousy and mad passion. From the very moment when the dark truth was revealed to him, every gentler feeling seemed to disappear. Pity, kindness of consideration, the religion of hospitality, all were forgotten. In the bitter pang which wrung at his heart, he, still too weak to hide his sufferings, was almost on the point of uttering a cry of alarm, and calling his guards to gather round him. This letter, which Colbert had thrown down at the king's feet, doubtlessly guessed, was the same that had disappeared with the porter Toby at Fontainebleau, after the attempt which Fouquet had made upon La Valliere's heart. 
Fouquet saw the king's pallor, and was far from guessing the evil. Colbert saw the king's anger, and rejoiced inwardly at the approach of the storm. Fouquet's voice drew the young prince from his wrathful reverie. "'What is the matter, sire?' inquired the superintendent with an expression of graceful interest. Louis made a violent effort over himself as he replied, "'Nothing. I am afraid your majesty is suffering?' I am suffering, and have already told you so, monsieur, but it is nothing. And the king, without waiting for the termination of the fireworks, turned towards the chateau. Fouquet accompanied him, and the whole court followed, leaving the remains of the fireworks consuming for their own amusement. The superintendent endeavoured again to question Louis the Fourteenth, but did not succeed in obtaining a reply. He imagined there had been some misunderstanding between Louis and La Valliere in the park, which had resulted in a slight quarrel, and that the king, who was not ordinarily sulky by disposition, but completely absorbed by his passion for La Valliere, had taken a dislike to every one because his mistress had shown herself offended with him. This idea was sufficient to console him. He had even a friendly and kindly smile for the young king, when the latter wished him good-night. This, however, was not all the king had to submit to. He was obliged to undergo the usual ceremony, which on that evening was marked by close adherence to the strictest etiquette. The next day was the one fixed for the departure. It was but proper that the guests should thank their host, and show him a little attention in return for the expenditure of his twelve millions. The only remark, approaching to amiability, which the king could find to say to Monsieur Fouquet, as he took leave of him, were in these words. Monsieur Fouquet, you shall hear from me. Be good enough to desire Monsieur d'Artagnan to come here. But the blood of Louis the Fourteenth, who had so profoundly dissimulated his feelings, boiled in his veins, and he was perfectly willing to order Monsieur Fouquet to be put an end to, with the same readiness, indeed, as his predecessor had caused the assassination of le maréchal d'ancre and so he disguised the terrible resolution he had formed beneath one of those royal smiles which like lightning flashes indicated coup d'etat fouquet took the king's hand and kissed it louis shuddered throughout his whole frame but allowed monsieur fouquet to touch his hand with his lips five minutes afterwards d'artagnan to whom the royal order had been communicated, entered Louis the Fourteenth's apartment. Aramis and Philippe were in theirs, still eagerly attentive, and still listening with all their ears. The king did not even give the captain of the musketeers time to approach his armchair, but ran forward to meet him. "'Take care,' he exclaimed, "'that no one enters here.' "'Very good, sire,' replied the captain, whose glance had for a long time past analyzed the stormy indications on the royal countenance. He gave the necessary order at the door, but, returning to the king, he said, "'Is there something fresh the matter, your majesty?' "'How many men have you here?' inquired the king, without making any other reply to the question addressed to him. "'What for, sire?' "'How many men have you, I say?' repeated the king, stamping upon the ground with his foot. "'I have the musketeers.' "'Well, and what others?' Twenty guards, and thirteen Swiss.' 
how many men will be required to to do what sire replied the musketeer opening his large calm eyes to arrest monsieur fouquet d'artagnan fell back a step to arrest monsieur fouquet he burst forth are you going to tell me that it is impossible exclaimed the king in tones of cold vindictive passion i never say that anything is impossible replied d'artagnan wounded to the quick very well do it then d'artagnan turned on his heel and made his way towards the door it was but a short distance and he cleared it in half a dozen paces when he reached it he suddenly paused and said your majesty will forgive me but in order to effect this arrest i should like written directions for what purpose and since when has the king's word been insufficient for you because the word of a king when it springs from a feeling of anger may possibly change when the feeling changes a truce to set phrases monsieur you have another thought besides that oh i at least have certain thoughts and ideas which unfortunately others have not d'artagnan replied impertinently the king in the tempest of his wrath hesitated and drew back in the face of d'artagnan's frank courage just as a horse crouches on his haunches under the strong hand of a bold and experienced rider what is your thought he exclaimed this sire replied d'artagnan you cause a man to be arrested when you are still under his roof and passion is alone the cause of that when your anger shall have passed you will regret what you have done and then i wish to be in a position to show you your signature if that however should fail to be a reparation it will at least show us that the king was wrong to lose his temper wrong to lose his temper cried the king in a loud passionate voice did not my father my grandfathers too before me lose their temper at times in heaven's name the king your father and the king your grandfather never lost their temper except when under the protection of their own palace the king is master wherever he may be that is a flattering complimentary phrase which cannot proceed from any one but monsieur colbert but it happens not to be the truth the king is at home in every man's house when he has driven its owner out of it. The king bit his lips, but said nothing. "'Can it be possible?' said D'Artagnan. "'Here is a man who is positively ruining himself in order to please you, and you wish to have him arrested. Mordieu! Sire, if my name was Fouquet, and people treated me in that manner—' I would swallow at a single gulp all sorts of fireworks and other things, and I would set fire to them, and send myself and everybody else in blown-up atoms to the sky. But it is all the same. It is your wish, and it shall be done. Go, said the king. Have you men enough? Do you suppose I am going to take a whole host to help me? Arrest Monsieur Fouquet? Why, that is so easy that a very child might do it. It is like drinking a glass of wormwood. One makes an ugly face, and that is all. If he defends himself? He? It is not at all likely. Defend himself when such extreme harshness as you are going to practice makes the man a very martyr. Nay, I am sure that if he has a million of francs left, 
which I very much doubt, he would be willing enough to give it in order to have such a termination as this. But what does that matter? It shall be done at once. Stay, said the king. Do not make his arrest a public affair. That will be more difficult. Why so? Because nothing is easier than to go up to Monsieur Fouquet in the midst of a thousand enthusiastic guests who surround him and say, In the king's name I arrest you. But to go up to him, to turn him first one way and then another, to drive him up into one of the corners of the chessboard, in such a way that he cannot escape, to take him away from his guests, and keep him prisoner for you, without one of them, alas, having heard anything about it, that, indeed, is a genuine difficulty, the greatest of all, in truth, and I hardly see how it is to be done. You had better say it is impossible, and you will have finished much sooner. Heaven help me, but I seem to be surrounded by people who prevent me doing what I wish. I do not prevent your doing anything. Have you indeed decided? Take care of Monsieur Fouquet, until I shall have made up my mind by to-morrow morning. That shall be done, sire. And return when I rise in the morning for further orders. And now leave me to myself. You do not even want Monsieur Colbert, then? said the musketeer, firing his last shot as he was leaving the room. The king started. With his whole mind fixed on the thought of revenge, he had forgotten the cause and substance of the offence. No, no one, he said, no one here. Leave me. D'Artagnan quitted the room. The king closed the door with his own hands, and began to walk up and down his apartment at a furious pace, like a wounded bull in an arena, trailing from his horn the coloured streamers and the iron darts. At last he began to take comfort in the expression of his violent feelings. Miserable wretch that he is! Not only does he squander my finances, but with his ill-gotten plunder he corrupts secretaries, friends, generals, artists, and all, and tries to rob me of the one to whom I am most attached. This is the reason that perfidious girl so boldly took his part. Gratitude! And who can tell whether it was not a stronger feeling? Love itself! He gave himself up for a moment to the bitterest reflections. A satyr, he thought, with that abhorrent hate with which young men regard those more advanced in life, who still think of love. A man who has never found opposition or resistance in any one, who lavishes his gold and jewels in every direction, and who retains his staff of painters in order to take the portraits of his mistresses in the costume of goddesses. The king trembled with passion as he continued. He pollutes and profanes everything that belongs to me. He destroys everything that is mine. He will be my death at last, I know. That man is too much for me. He is my mortal enemy, but he shall forthwith fall. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. And as he pronounced these words, he struck the arm of the chair in which he was sitting violently, over and over again, and then rose like one in an epileptic fit. "'Tomorrow, tomorrow, oh, happy day,' he murmured. "'When the sun rises, no other rival shall that brilliant king of space possess but me. 
That man shall fall so low, that when people look at the abject ruin my anger shall have wrought, they will be forced to confess at last and at least that I am indeed greater than he. The king, who was incapable of mastering his emotions any longer, knocked over with a blow of his fist a small table placed close to his bedside, and in the very bitterness of anger, almost weeping, and half suffocated, he threw himself on his bed, dressed as he was, and bit the sheets in his extremity of passion, trying to find repose of body at least there. The bed creaked beneath his weight, and with the exception of a few broken sounds, emerging, or, one might say, exploding from his overburdened chest, absolute silence soon reigned in the chamber of Morpheus. End of chapter. Chapter Seventeen of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas. Chapter Seventeen High Treason. The ungovernable fury which took possession of the king at the sight and the perusal of Fouquet's letter to Valliere by degrees subsided into a feeling of pain and extreme weariness. Youth, invigorated by health and lightness of spirits, requiring soon that what it loses should be immediately restored, youth knows not those endless, sleepless nights which enable us to realize the fable of the vulture unceasingly feeding on Prometheus. In cases where the man of middle life, in his acquired strength of will and purpose, and the old, in their state of natural exhaustion, find incessant augmentation of their bitter sorrow. A young man, surprised by the sudden appearance of misfortune, weakens himself in sighs and groans and tears, directly struggling with his grief, and is thereby far sooner overthrown by the inflexible enemy with whom he is engaged. Once overthrown, his struggles cease. Louis could not hold out more than a few minutes at the end of which he had ceased to clench his hands, and scorch in fancy with his looks the invisible objects of his hatred. He soon ceased to attack with his violent imprecations, not Monsieur Fouquet alone, but even La Valliere herself. From fury he subsided into despair, and from despair to prostration. After he had thrown himself for a few minutes to and fro convulsively on his bed, his nerveless arms fell quietly down, his head lay languidly on his pillow, his limbs, exhausted with excessive emotion, still trembled occasionally, agitated by muscular contractions, while from his breast faint and infrequent sighs still issued. Morpheus, the tutelary deity of the apartment, towards whom Louis raised his eyes, wearied by his anger and reconciled by his tears, showered down upon him the sleep-inducing poppies with which his hands are ever filled. So presently the monarch closed his eyes and fell asleep. Then it seemed to him, as it often happens in that first sleep, so light and gentle, which raises the body above the couch and the soul above the earth, it seemed to him, we say, as if the god Morpheus, painted on the ceiling, looked at him with eyes resembling human eyes, that something shone brightly, 
and move to and fro in the dome above the sleeper, that the crowd of terrible dreams which thronged together in his brain, and which were interrupted for a moment, half revealed a human face, with a hand resting against the mouth, and in an attitude of deep and absorbed meditation. And strange enough, too, this man bore so wonderful a resemblance to the king himself, that Louis fancied he was looking at his own face reflected in a mirror, with the exception, however, that the face was saddened by a feeling of the profoundest pity. Then it seemed to him as if the dome gradually retired, escaping from his gaze, and that the figures and attributes painted by Le Brun became darker and darker as the distance became more and more remote. A gentle, easy movement, as regular as that by which a vessel plunges beneath the waves, had succeeded to the immovableness of the bed. Doubtless the king was dreaming, and in this dream the crown of gold, which fastened the curtains together, seemed to recede from his vision, just as the dome, to which it remained suspended, had done, so that the winged genius which, with both its hands, supported the crown, seemed, though vainly so, to call upon the king, who was fast disappearing from it. The bed still sunk. Louis, with his eyes open, could not resist the deception of this cruel hallucination. At last, as the light of the royal chamber faded away into darkness and gloom, something cold, gloomy, and inexplicable in its nature seemed to infect the air. No paintings, nor gold, nor velvet hangings were visible any longer, nothing but walls of a dull grey colour, which the increasing gloom made darker every moment. And yet the bed still continued to descend, and, after a minute, which seemed in its duration almost an age to the king, it reached a stratum of air, black and chill as death, and then it stopped. The king could no longer see the light in his room, except as from the bottom of a well we can see the light of day. "'I am under the influence of some atrocious dream,' he thought. "'It is time to awaken from it. Come, let me wake.' Everyone has experienced the sensation the above remark conveys. There was hardly a person who, in the midst of a nightmare whose influence is suffocating, has not said to himself— by the help of that light which still burns in the brain when every human light is extinguished. It is nothing but a dream, after all. This was precisely what Louis the Fourteenth said to himself, but when he said, Come, come, wake up, he perceived that not only was he already awake, but still more, that he had his eyes open also. And then he looked all round him, on his right hand and on his left, Two armed men stood in stolid silence, each wrapped in a huge cloak, and the face covered with a mask. One of them held a small lamp in his hand, whose glimmering light revealed the saddest picture a king could look upon. Louis could not help saying to himself that his dream still lasted, and that all he had to do to cause it to disappear was to move his arms, or to say something aloud. He darted from his bed and found himself upon the damp, moist ground. Then, addressing himself to the man who held the lamp in his hand, he said, "'What is this, monsieur, and what is the meaning of this jest?' "'It is no jest,' 
replied in a deep voice the masked figure that held the lantern. "'Do you belong to Monsieur Fouquet?' inquired the king, greatly astonished at his situation. "'It matters very little to whom we belong,' said the phantom. "'We are your masters now. That is sufficient.' The king, more impatient than intimidated, turned to the other masked figure. "'If this is a comedy,' he said, you will tell Monsieur Fouquet that I find it unseemly and improper, and that I command it should cease. The second-masked person to whom the king had addressed himself was a man of huge stature and vast circumference. He held himself erect and motionless as any block of marble. "'Well,' added the king, stamping his foot, "'you do not answer.' "'We do not answer you, my good monsieur.' said the giant, in a stentorian voice, "'Because there is nothing to say.' "'At least tell me what you want,' exclaimed Louis, folding his arms with a passionate gesture. "'You will know by and by,' replied the man who held the lamp. "'In the meantime, tell me where I am.' "'Look.' Louis looked all round him, but by the light of the lamp which the masked figure raised for the purpose, he could perceive nothing but the damp walls which glistened here and there with the slimy traces of the snail. "'Oh! oh! a dungeon!' cried the king. "'No, a subterranean passage.' "'Which leads?' "'Would you be good enough to follow us?' "'I shall not stir from hence!' cried the king. "'If you are obstinate, my dear young friend,' replied the taller of the two, I will lift you up in my arms, and roll you up in your own cloak, and if you should happen to be stifled, why, so much the worse for you. As he said this, he disengaged from beneath his cloak a hand of which Milo of Crotona would have envied him the possession, on the day when he had that unhappy idea of rending his last oak. The king dreaded violence, for he could well believe that the two men into whose power he had fallen had not gone so far with any idea of drawing back, and that they would consequently be ready to proceed to extremities, if necessary. He shook his head and said, "'It seems I have fallen into the hands of a couple of assassins. Move on, then.' Neither of the men answered a word to this remark. The one who carried the lantern walked first, the king followed him, while the second-masked figure closed the procession. In this manner they passed along a winding gallery of some length, with as many staircases leading out of it as are to be found in the mysterious and gloomy palaces of Anne Radcliffe's creation. All these windings and turnings, during which the king heard the sound of running water over his head, ended at last in a long corridor closed by an iron door. The figure with the lamp opened the door with one of the keys he wore suspended at his girdle, where— during the whole of the brief journey, the king had heard them rattle. As soon as the door was opened and admitted the air, Louis recognized the balmy odors that trees exhale in hot summer nights. He paused, hesitatingly, for a moment or two, but the huge sentinel who followed him thrust him out of the subterranean passage. "'Another blow,' said the king, turning towards the one who had just had the audacity to touch his sovereign. What do you intend to do with the King of France? Try to forget that word, 
replied the man with the lamp, in a tone which as little admitted of a reply as one of the famous decrees of Minos. "'You deserve to be broken on the wheel for the words that you have just made use of,' said the giant, as he extinguished the lamp his companion handed to him. "'But the king is too kind-hearted.' Louis, at that threat, made so sudden a movement that it seemed as if he meditated flight, but the giant's hand was in a moment placed on his shoulder, and fixed him motionless where he stood. "'But tell me at least where we are going,' said the king. "'Come,' replied the former of the two men, with a kind of respect in his manner, and leading his prisoner towards a carriage which seemed to be in waiting. The carriage was completely concealed amid the trees. Two horses, with their feet fettered, were fastened by a halter to the lower branches of a large oak. "'Get in,' said the same man, opening the carriage door and letting down the step. The king obeyed, seated himself at the back of the carriage, the padded door of which was shut and locked, immediately upon him and his guide. As for the giant, he cut the fastenings by which the horses were bound, harnessed them himself, and mounted on the box of the carriage, which was unoccupied. The carriage set off immediately at a quick trot, turned into the road to Paris, and in the forest of Senar, found a relay of horses fastened to the trees in the same manner the first horses had been and without a postillion. The man on the box changed the horses, and continued to follow the road towards Paris with the same rapidity, so that they entered the city about three o'clock in the morning. The carriage proceeded along the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, and after having called out to the sentinel, "'By the king's order!' the driver conducted the horses into the circular enclosure of the Bastille, looking out upon the courtyard, called La Cour du Gouvernement. There the horses drew up, reeking with sweat, at the flight of steps, and a sergeant of the guard ran forward. "'Go and wake the governor,' said the coachman in a voice of thunder. With the exception of this voice, which might have been heard at the entrance of the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, everything remained as calm in the carriage as in the prison. Ten minutes afterwards, Monsieur de Baisemeaux appeared in his dressing-gown on the threshold of the door. "'What is the matter now?' he asked. "'And whom have you brought me there?' The man with the lantern opened the carriage-door, and said two or three words to the one who acted as driver, who immediately got down from his seat, took up a short musket which he kept under his feet, and placed its muzzle on his prisoner's chest. "'And fire at once, if he speaks,' added aloud the man who alighted from the carriage. "'Very good!' replied his companion, without another remark. With this recommendation, the person who had accompanied the king in the carriage ascended the flight of steps, at the top of which the governor was awaiting him. "'Monsieur d'Herblay,' said the latter. "'Hush,' said Aramis, "'let us go into your room.' "'Good heavens, what brings you here at this hour?' "'A mistake, my dear Monsieur de Baisemeaux. Aramis replied quietly, "'It appears that you were quite right the other day.' "'What about?' inquired the governor. "'About the order of release, my dear friend.' "'Tell me what you mean, monsieur.' "'No, monseigneur,' said the governor, almost suffocated by surprise and terror. 
It is a very simple affair. You remember, dear Monsieur de Baisemeaux, that an order of release was sent to you. Yes, for Marchiali. Very good. We both thought that it was for Marchiali. Certainly. You will recollect, however, that I would not credit it, but that you compelled me to believe it. Oh, Baisemeaux, my good fellow, what a word to make use of. Strongly recommended, that was all. Strongly recommended, yes. Strongly recommended to give him up to you, and that you carried him off with you in your carriage. Well, my dear Monsieur de Baisemeaux, it was a mistake. It was discovered at the ministry, so that I now bring you an order from the king to set at liberty Selden, that poor Selden fellow, you know. Selden? Are you sure this time? Well, read it yourself, added Aramis, handing him the order. Why, said Baisemeaux, this order is the very same that has already passed through my hands. Indeed? It is the very one I assured you I saw the other evening. Parbleu! I recognize it by the blot of ink. I do not know whether it is that, but all I know is that I bring it for you. But then, what about the other? What other? Marchiali. I have got him here with me. But that is not enough for me. I require a new order to take him back again. Don't talk such nonsense, my dear Baisemeaux. You talk like a child. Where is the order you received respecting Marchiali? Baisemeaux ran to his iron chest and took it out. Aramis seized hold of it, coolly tore it in four pieces, held them to the lamp, and burnt them. "'Good heavens! What are you doing?' exclaimed Baisemeaux, in an extremity of terror. "'Look at your position quietly, my good governor,' said Aramis, with imperturbable self-possession. "'And you will see how very simple the whole affair is.' You no longer possess any order justifying Marchiali's release. I am a lost man. Far from it, my good fellow, since I have brought Marchiali back to you, and all accordingly is just the same as if he had never left. Ah, said the governor, completely overcome by terror. Plain enough, you see, and you will go and shut him up immediately. I should think so, indeed. And you will hand over this Selden to me, whose liberation is authorized by this order. Do you understand? I, I, you do understand, I see, said Aramis. Very good. Baisemeaux clapped his hands together. But why, at all events, after having taken Marchiali away from me, do you bring him back again? cried the unhappy governor, in a paroxysm of terror, and completely dumbfounded. "'For a friend such as you are,' said Aramis, "'for so devoted a servant, I have no secrets.' And he put his mouth close to Baisemeaux's ear, as he said in a low tone of voice, "'You know the resemblance between that unfortunate fellow and—' "'And the king, yes.' "'Very good. The first use that Marchiali made of his liberty was to persist—' Can you guess what? How it is likely I should guess? To persist in saying that he was king of France, to dress himself up in clothes like those of the king, and then pretend to assume that he was the king himself. 
"'Gracious heavens!' "'That is the reason why I have brought him back again, my dear friend. "'He is mad, and lets everyone see how mad he is.' "'What is to be done, then?' "'That is very simple. "'Let no one hold any communication with him. "'You understand that when his peculiar style of madness came to the king's ears, "'the king, who had pitied his terrible affliction,' and saw that all his kindness had been repaid by black ingratitude, became perfectly furious, so that now, and remember this very distinctly, dear Monsieur de Baisemeaux, for it concerns you most closely, so that there is now, I repeat, sentence of death pronounced against all those who may allow him to communicate with anyone else but me or the king himself. You understand, Baisemeaux, sentence of death you need not ask me whether i understand and now let us go down and conduct this poor devil back to his dungeon again unless you prefer he should come up here what would be the good of that it would be better perhaps to enter his name in the prison book at once of course certainly not a doubt of it in that case have him up Baisemeaux ordered the drums to be beaten and the bell to be rung, as a warning to every one to retire, in order to avoid meeting a prisoner, about whom it was desired to observe a certain mystery. Then, when the passages were free, he went to take the prisoner from the carriage, at whose breast Porthos, faithful to the directions which had been given him, still kept his musket levelled. "'Ah! Is that you, miserable wretch?' cried the governor, as soon as he perceived the king. Very good, very good. And immediately, making the king get out of the carriage, he led him, still accompanied by Porthos, who had not taken off his mask, and Aramis, who again resumed his, up the stairs, to the second batoriere, and opened the door of the room in which Philippe for six long years had bemoaned his existence. The king entered the cell without pronouncing a single word, he faltered in as limp and haggard as a rain-struck lily. Baisemeaux shut the door upon him, turned the key twice in the lock, and then returned to Aramis. "'It is quite true,' he said in a low tone, "'that he bears a striking resemblance to the king, but less so than you said.' "'So that,' said Aramis, "'you would not have been deceived by the substitution of the one for the other?' What a question! You are a most valuable fellow, Baisemeaux, said Aramis, and now set Selden free. Oh, yes, I was going to forget that. I will go and give orders at once. Bah! Tomorrow will be time enough. Tomorrow? Oh, no, this very minute. Well, go off to your affairs, I will go away to mine. But it is quite understood, is it not? what is quite understood that no one is to enter the prisoner's cell except with an order from the king an order which i will myself bring quite so adieu monseigneur aramis returned to his companion now porthos my good fellow back again to vaux and as fast as possible a man is light and easy enough when he faithfully served his king and in serving him saved his country, said Porthos. 
The horses will be light as if our tissues were constructed of the wind of heaven. So let us be off. And the carriage, lightened of a prisoner, who might well be, as he in fact was, very heavy in the sight of Aramis, passed across the drawbridge of the Bastille, which was raised again immediately behind it. End of chapter. Chapter 18 of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas. Chapter 18 A Night at the Bastille. Pain, anguish, and suffering in human life are always in proportion to the strength with which a man is endowed. We will not pretend to say that heaven always apportions to a man's capability of endurance the anguish with which he afflicts him, for that indeed would not be true, since heaven permits the existence of death, which is sometimes the only refuge open to those who are too closely pressed, too bitterly afflicted, as far as the body is concerned. Suffering is in proportion to the strength which has been accorded. In other words, the weak suffer more where the trial is the same, than the strong. And what are the elementary principles, you may ask, that compose human strength? Is it not, more than anything else, exercise, habit, experience? We shall not even take the trouble to demonstrate this, for it is an axiom in morals, as in physics. When the young king, stupefied and crushed in every sense and feeling, found himself led to a cell in the Bastille, he fancied death itself is but asleep, that it too has its dreams as well, that the bed had broken through the flooring of his room at Vaux, that death had resulted from the occurrence, and that, still carrying out his dream, the king, Louis the Fourteenth, now no longer living, was dreaming one of those horrors, impossible to realize in life, which is termed dethronement, imprisonment, an insult towards a sovereign who formerly wielded unlimited power. To be present at, an actual witness, too, of this bitterness of death, to float indecisively in an incomprehensible mystery, between resemblance and reality, to hear everything, to see everything, without interfering in a single detail of agonizing suffering, was, so the king thought within himself, a torture far more terrible, since it might last for ever. "'Is this what is termed eternity? Hell?' he murmured, at the moment the door was closed upon him, which we remember Baisemeaux had shut with his own hands. He did not even look round him, and in the room, leaning with his back against the wall, he allowed himself to be carried away by the terrible supposition that he was already dead, as he closed his eyes, in order to avoid looking upon something even worse still. "'How can I have died?' he said to himself, sick with terror. "'The bed might have been let down by some artificial means. But no, I do not remember to have felt a bruise, nor any shock either. Would they not rather have poisoned me at my meals, or with the fumes of wax, as they did my ancestress, Jean d'Albret? Suddenly, the chill of the dungeons seemed to fall like a wet cloak upon Louis's shoulders. "'I have seen,' he said, 
my father lying dead upon his funeral couch, in his regal robes, that pale face, so calm and worn, those hands, once so skilful, lying nerveless by his side, those limbs stiffened by the icy grasp of death, nothing there betokened a sleep that was disturbed by dreams, and yet how numerous were the dreams which heaven might have sent that royal corpse, him whom so many others had preceded, hurried away by him into eternal death. No, that king was still the king. He was enthroned still upon that funeral couch, as upon a velvet armchair. He had not abdicated one title of his majesty. God, who had not punished him, cannot, will not punish me, who have done nothing. A strange sound attracted the young man's attention. He looked round him, and saw on the mantel-shelf, just below an enormous crucifix, coarsely painted in fresco on the wall, a rat of enormous size engaged in nibbling a piece of dry bread, but fixing all the time an intelligent and inquiring look upon the new occupant of the cell. The king could not resist a sudden impulse of fear and disgust. He moved back towards the door, uttering a loud cry, and as if he but needed this cry, which escaped from his breast almost unconsciously, to recognize himself, Louis knew that he was alive and in full possession of his natural senses. "'A prisoner!' he cried. "'Ay, ay, a prisoner!' He looked round him for a bell to summon someone to him. "'There are no bells in the Bastille,' he said and it is in the Bastille I am imprisoned. In what way can I have been made a prisoner? It must have been owing to a conspiracy of Monsieur Fouquet. I have been drawn to Vaux as to a snare. Monsieur Fouquet cannot be acting alone in this affair. His agent. That voice that I but just now heard was Monsieur d'Herblay's. I recognized it. Colbert was right then. But what is Fouquet's object? to reign in my place and stead? Impossible! Yet who knows? thought the king, relapsing into gloom again. Perhaps my brother, the Duc d'Orléans, is doing that which my uncle wished to do during the whole of his life against my father. But the queen? My mother, too? And La Valliere? Oh, La Valliere, she will have been abandoned to Madame. Dear, dear girl! Yes, it is. It must be so. They have shut her up as they have me. We are separated for ever. And at this idea of separation, the poor lover burst into a flood of tears and sobs and groans. There is a governor in this place, the king continued, in a fury of passion. I will speak to him. I will summon him to me. He called. No voice replied to his. He seized hold of his chair and hurled it against the massive oaken door. The wood resounded against the door, and awakened many a mournful echo in the profound depths of the staircase, but from a human creature, none. This was a fresh proof for the king of the slight regard in which he was held at the Bastille. Therefore, when his first fit of anger had passed away, having remarked a barred window through which there passed a stream of light, lozenge shape. There must be, he knew, the bright orb of approaching day. Louis began to call out, at first gently enough, then louder 
and louder still, but no one replied. Twenty other attempts which he made, one after another, obtained no other or better success. His blood began to boil within him, and mount to his head. His nature was such that, accustomed to command, he trembled at the idea of disobedience. The prisoner broke the chair, which was too heavy for him to lift, and made use of it as a battering-ram to strike against the door. He struck so loudly, and so repeatedly, that the perspiration soon began to pour down his face. The sound became tremendous and continuous. Certain stifled, smothered cries replied in different directions. This sound produced a strange effect upon the king. He paused to listen. It was the voice of the prisoners, formerly his victims, now his companions. The voices ascended like vapours through the thick ceilings and the massive walls, and rose in accusations against the author of this noise, as doubtless their sighs and tears accused, in whispered tones, the author of their captivity. After having deprived so many people of their liberty, the king came among them to rob them of their rest. This idea almost drove him mad. It redoubled his strength, or rather his will, bent upon obtaining some information, or a conclusion to the affair. With a portion of the broken chair he recommenced the noise. At the end of an hour Louis heard something in the corridor, behind the door of his cell, and a violent blow, which was returned upon the door itself, made him cease his own. "'Are you mad?' said a rude, brutal voice. "'What is the matter with you this morning?' "'This morning?' thought the king, but he said aloud, politely, "'Monsieur, are you the governor of the Bastille?' "'My good fellow, your head is out of sorts,' replied the voice. "'But that is no reason why you should make such a terrible disturbance. Be quiet, Mordieu.' "'Are you the governor?' the king inquired again. He heard a door on the corridor close. The jailer had just left, not condescending to reply a single word. When the king had assured himself of his departure, his fury no longer knew any bounds. As agile as a tiger, he leaped from the table to the window, and struck the iron bars with all his might. He broke a pane of glass, the pieces of which fell clanking into the courtyard below. He shouted with increasing hoarseness, "'The governor! The governor!' This excess lasted fully an hour during which time he was in a burning fever. With his hair in disorder and matted on his forehead, his dress torn and covered with dust and plaster, his linen in shreds, the king never rested until his strength was utterly exhausted, and it was not until then that he clearly understood the pitiless thickness of the walls, the impenetrable nature of the cement, invincible to every influence but that of time, and that he possessed no other weapon but despair. He leaned his forehead against the door, and let the feverish throbbings of his heart calm by degrees. It had seemed as if one single additional pulsation would have made it burst. A moment will come when the food which is given to the prisoners will be brought to me. I shall then see someone. I shall speak to him, and get an answer. And the king tried to remember at what hour the first repast of the prisoners was served at the Bastille. He was ignorant even of this detail. The feeling of remorse at this remembrance smote him like the thrust of a dagger, 
that he should have lived for five-and-twenty years a king, and in the enjoyment of every happiness, without having bestowed a moment's thought on the misery of those who had been unjustly deprived of their liberty. The king blushed for very shame. He felt that heaven, in permitting this fearful humiliation, did no more than render to the man the same torture as had been inflicted by that man upon so many others. Nothing could be more efficacious for reawakening his mind to religious influences than the prostration of his heart and mind and soul beneath the feeling of such acute wretchedness. But Louis dared not even kneel in prayer to God to entreat him to terminate his bitter trial. "'Heaven is right,' he said. "'Heaven acts wisely. It would be cowardly to pray to heaven for that which I have so often refused my own fellow-creatures.' He had reached this stage of his reflections, that is, of his agony of mind, when a similar noise was again heard behind his door, followed this time by the sound of the key in the lock, and of the bolts being withdrawn from their staples. The king bounded forward to be nearer to the person who was about to enter, but suddenly reflecting that it was a movement unworthy of a sovereign, he paused, assumed a noble and calm expression, which for him was easy enough and waited with his back turned towards the window, in order, to some extent, to conceal his agitation from the eyes of the person who was about to enter. It was only a jailer with a basket of provisions. The king looked at the man with restless anxiety, and waited until he spoke. "'Ah!' said the latter. "'You have broken your chair. I said you had done so. Why, you have gone quite mad.' "'Monsieur,' said the king, "'be careful what you say. It will be a very serious affair for you.' The jailer placed the basket on the table, and looked at his prisoner steadily. "'What do you say?' he said. "'Desire the governor to come to me,' added the king, in accents full of calm and dignity. "'Come, my boy,' said the turnkey. You have always been very quiet and reasonable, but you are getting vicious, it seems, and I wish you to know it in time. You have broken your chair, and made a great disturbance. That is an offence punishable by imprisonment in one of the lower dungeons. Promise me not to begin over again, and I will not say a word about it to the governor. I wish to see the governor, replied the king, still governing his passions. He will send you off to one of the dungeons, I tell you, so take care. I insist upon it, do you hear? Ah, ah, your eyes are becoming wild again. Very good, I shall take away your knife. And the jailer did what he said, quitted the prisoner, and closed the door, leaving the king more astounded, more wretched, more isolated than ever. It was useless, though he tried it, to make the same noise again on his door, and equally useless that he threw the plates and dishes out of the window. Not a single sound was heard in recognition. Two hours afterwards he could not be recognized as a king, a gentleman, a man, a human being. He might rather be called a madman, tearing the door with his nails, trying to tear up the floorings of his cell, and uttering such wild and fearful cries that the old Bastille seemed to tremble to its very foundations for having revolted against its master. As for the governor, 
The jailer did not even think of disturbing him. The turnkeys and the sentinels had reported the occurrence to him, but what was the good of it? Were not these madmen common enough in such a prison? And were not the walls still stronger? Monsieur de Baisemeaux, thoroughly impressed with what Aramis had told him, and in perfect conformity with the king's order, hoped only that one thing might happen, namely, that the madman Marchiali might be mad enough to hang himself to the canopy of his bed, or to one of the bars of the window. In fact, the prisoner was anything but a profitable investment for Monsieur Baisemeaux, and became more annoying than agreeable to him. These complications of Selden and Marchiali, the complications first of setting at liberty, and then imprisoning again, the complications arising from the strong likeness in question, had at last found a very proper denouement. Baisemeaux even thought he had remarked that D'Herblay himself was not altogether dissatisfied with the result. "'And then, really,' said Baisemeaux to his next in command, "'an ordinary prisoner is already unhappy enough in being a prisoner. He suffers quite enough, indeed, to induce one to hope, charitably enough, that his death may not be far distant. With still greater reason, accordingly, when the prisoner has gone mad,' and might bite and make a terrible disturbance in the Bastille. Why, in such a case, it is not simply an act of mere charity to wish him dead. It would be almost a good and even commendable action, quietly to have him put out of his misery. And the good-natured governor thereupon sat down to his late breakfast. End of chapter Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.